Wants Do to you know you? another thing? Have you ever tried to say the word yellow really fast? Like Yo. many, many times over? I, it, I don't believe I have. It no. makes my brain crazy. Is it like a unique New York? I don't know what happens. I discovered this. I think watching her made me think back on my last relationship. And mm-hmm. the, the discovery of saying the word yellow over and over, breaking my brain, happened during that time. And I remember <laughs> driving with my ex in the car, <laughs> shouting the word yellow. <laughs> and she thought, thought I was insane. <laughs> but uh, yellow, 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 yellow. <laughs> Yellow, 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 yellow. <laughs> you sound like a car that the wheel comes off of. Yellow, 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 yellow. It's impossible. It's impossible. <laughs> oh. Hello and welcome to Nashville CA, your double feature, double weekly podcast hosted by one guy in Nashville and one guy in California. My name is Sean. It's 2024. Happy New Year, everybody. Except we already released a New Year episode. God, and and this isn't coming out until the 19th. Oh, boy. This is a mess. Hi, Josh. Hey, Sean. Uh, Time is relative. So I'm really not used to us having recorded episodes so close together recently. And so this is kind of breaking my brain that I just saw you 10 days ago. Yeah, it's it has been. It's been not long enough. Not that I don't want to see you, but you know what I mean? I agree. Yeah. No, I just I have no new material here. for (laughs) I can't come up with a whole hour that quickly. A whole hour, mm-hmm. about a whole four hours. That was a gauntlet of an editing session. Uh, yeah, I would episode. imagine. <laughs> it's all right. It's good for us. We got to stretch our legs every once in a while. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about that review that said we're long winded during that episode. <laughs> so sorry to that. Sorry to that one listener. That's. Uh, I consider that a feature, not a bug. I agree. I think today's going to go. Quick, though. Quicker. Oh, okay. Quicker. Well, at least I think one of the movies may go quicker. Mm-hmm. The other, I feel like I have a lot to talk about. Oh, okay. Her, it's just kind of a nothing movie. I have so much to say about Demolition. No, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should start with Demolition Man today. What do you think? Oh, okay. I That's what I went initially, and then I finished her, and I thought we might swap them. Uh, but I concur. I think, we, like, conversationally, we need to ramp up into her. We gotta slowly wade into the futuristic waters before we really dive deep into them. Mm-hmm. And uh, so today's my selfish episode where I just decided to take over the show because I was mad at Josh. And uh, so we're watching two movies that he hasn't seen. I mean, he kind of saw Demolition Movie. <laughs> Demolition, Demolition Movie, perfect. <laughs> At some point back in the day, but um, yeah, this is my takeover. It's a show about near future movies, and Demolition Man's only eight years away, my friend. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can see all this happening in the next eight years. <laughs> I mean, some stuff is pretty close. 
But uh, I did so keep we'll making. I kept making the note of like this is scarily accurate. It's not bad, right? Yeah. Like, there's they got a lot right. They got a lot wrong too. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like, like tell me. You say you've kind of seen this movie, but not really. Like, yeah. What's up with that? I think. Um, I I think that I was at Eli and Andrew's back when they when Andrew lived in town and they they shared an apartment. Uh, and I believe we were drinking and watched it. Uh, it might have been a double feature with uh, Only God Forgives or God Only Forgives or whatever, and we got like really punching drunk. And we threw food at each other that night. It was kind of a weird one. So I don't really remember much of Demolition Man. Kind of a weird movie. Yeah. Only God forgives. Yeah. That was where Nicholas Winding Refn went from being like one of my guys to being like, ooh, I, I don't know where you're going, my friend. And then he made Neon Demon, and I'm like, oh, buddy, you, you're lost. I like Neon Demon better than Only God Forgives. Uh, and I would probably agree because at least Neon Demon is doing something. Yes. Only God Forgives was almost like non-existent, and that's what he's continued since then. Like his series, have you tried watching uh, Copenhagen Cowboy or the other one he did, Too Old to Die Young? No, nope. yeah, they're very similar, and I feel bad because I, I still feel like I should be on their wavelength, and I just don't get it. Have you ever seen Valhalla Rising? No. It's a Viking movie that Winding Refn did with Maz Mikkelsen. Mm. And loved it at the time, but thinking back, it's extremely minimalist. And I believe Maz is mute the entire movie. I, I don't hate that. That could be interesting. I think you should check it out. It's If nothing else, it's just beautiful cinematography in Iceland or Sweden or maybe Denmark since they're Danish, but um, <laughs> somewhere it, it's worth a watch. It's worth a watch just for the, the filming. But anyway, we're talking, we're talking demolition man. And it's directed by uh, Marco Brambia. Who's a man I've never heard of and never seen a single other piece of his work directed excess baggage after this Dinotopia and Destricted. Those movies don't exist. Destricted, I believe he did a part of, and your boy Gaspar also did a part of. It's like an anthology film. I'm looking at the poster, and you are correct. Yeah. Oh, uh, I, I've, I don't know how I feel about my boy Gaspar, <laughs> by the way. Because that, that's, like, that's like being in a band with Gigi, Gigi Allen or something. Like, I, don't, I don't really embrace this all the way. I just find him interesting. <laughs> He's compelling. I don't really, I don't want to say I'm an endorser. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. I love that guy. <laughs> okay. How good is Wesley Snipes in this movie? Uh, this, I want this Wesley Snipes in, in so many things in this period too. He's perfect for this mid early nineties thing, right? He was so dialed in and he knew the camp and ham that this movie called for, especially with Stallone being so Stallone-y and serious. Uh, I mean, there's a few jokes that he does, but, you know, Stallone is just like, 
that very macho protagonist who never never gets the drop on him and like never gets beaten down and so it's boring that character is boring i think that like super soldier serious guy so we need the camp and dude the the orange fishnet uh tank top with denim blue denim overalls Mm -hmm. and that weird ass yellow blonde curly hair it's it's an iconic look and the heterochromia i Uh, did not remember him having two different color eyes his his outfit uh i wrote down that he looked like a futuristic good guy like good guys from yeah i i could see yeah i could see like having an action figure as a kid one of the heroes dressed like that yes um so and like wesley snipes was also so dialed in with he's so goddamn good in major league so looking at it here he had this chunk of time from it was actually a good run it's longer than i remember from major league up through things like uh, king of new york mo better blues he's fantastic in uh new jack city passenger 57 like i would say all the way up through blade Bla- is like blade I'd say somewhere around Blade 2 or Blade 3 is when it started to fall apart for him. Mm-hmm. And apparently there was also uh, tax issues. Didn't he go to jail for tax fraud? Something, that kind of thing. But, uh, oh, the fan. I know, I think we've talked about the fan on here. I have a weird soft spot for that movie. It's bad, but I like it. Yeah, now he had, he had a real run in the 90s. Except I do remember watching, oh, fuck, what's that? Oh, The Art of War. I watched it when I was a kid, and that movie sucks. The Art of War. Yeah. No, it's oh, bad. that's 2000, just, though. That's, that's post-Blade. Ex- yeah. No, I think... Blade I broke think him. Somehow Blade broke him. And yeah. Maybe he... Blade made him too big of a... St- Dar? I, I I don't know what happened. I wonder if the like blade not exploding did something. Like was he was invested blade not in a it? huge hit? I don't I don't recall. My friends and I watched it a lot in high school. So I mean we talked about Frost, Deacon Frost, mm-hmm. and motherfuckers always trying to ice skate uphill. And Chris that's where I know Chris Christofferson from. I don't know any of his music, but I know he's Blade's weapon guy. Ooh, that's interesting. I feel like you would like his music. Yeah. Okay. I'll yeah. check it out. That's that's that is interesting. But uh Yeah, it's one of those maybe I loved it and it didn't get a huge reaction. Uh because I did discover it on DVD. No. No, I didn't. I did watch it in the theater. Oh, I distinctly remember the college town theater that I watched it in now all of a sudden. Ooh, that's like a, a Proust eating a Madeline right there. I'm having a, a deep flashback. Pardon me if I, if I wax poetical about the place that smelled horribly, but if you had a student ID, you could get in for like 250 or something. You lost me at Proust eating a Madeline. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> I remember my parents watching Tu Wong Fu, Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. Mm-hmm. Gotta say the whole title. 
And I think I got sick during that movie. So I, I, I associate that movie with me becoming ill. Same mm-hmm. thing with E.T. The last time I watched E.T., I threw up. And so now oh. E.T. makes me nauseous. <laughs> uh, but what if, like, if he hadn't really fucked up, it would be interesting that, like, there's a, there's, there's a world where Wesley Snipes was, like, a part of the whole Marvel revitalization mcu everything and his blade was like a a central part of that yes i'd like i'd like to see that world that'd be interesting um a couple years ago he was in dolomite is my name uh which i believe was co-written by larry karaszewski who also contributed to demolition man that's interesting. Huh. There's, um, as we keep going, there's a few with both of these movies. We have some mm-hmm. returning cast members, and mm-hmm. we have some cast members who are linked from other movies. So uh, let's get into this one, though. So both movies also conveniently did not realize set in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. That was just a happy accident. I did not remember her. But, um... So, LA 96, I think it's kind of saying we're in the middle of the race riots, would be my guess. Um, and Simon Phoenix has 30 hostages in some huge building. And uh, Sylvester Stallone plays uh, John Spartan, a cop who plays by his own rules. What a great gets... name. <laughs> How he helicopter drops in, I feel like they lifted that from Contra 2 on super c <laughs> yes on yeah. and on nes yeah that you start that game by dropping in just like this onto a roof and blasting bad guys uh can you hear my dog barking no john spartan is a great name too yeah john spartan like what are some of the other great names i mean keanu reeves has two with uh johnny utah from mm-hmm. point break and then his quarterback in The Replacements is Shane Falco. Ooh. I, I also I, really like uh, Cole Trickle from Days of Thunder. That's like based on a real guy, though, isn't it? Something. It's something similar to that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you would you would know more than I. Race cars? Saying racing race NASCARs in your culture, not mine. Uh, as a Midwesterner? You're kind of southern adjacent. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, uh, uh, Indiana has the Indianapolis 500. That's a thing. That's a thing. Yeah. Uh, there are some, I mean, Simon Phoenix is a great name, too. Simon Phoenix is excellent. Yeah. And then when it leads to so many Simon Says jokes. Yes. <laughs> I, I, don't, I hesitate to call them jokes, but... <laughs> Things that are said. Simon says bleed. (laughs) Um, So John Rambo, or Spartan, excuse me, drops into this building, kills all the bad guys, gets into a confrontation with Simon Phoenix, asking him where the hostages are, and Simon has flooded a room with gasoline. 
And I'm pretty sure this movie does not know that the fumes of gasoline are flammable, not the liquid. Mm -hmm. Because he holds a blowtorch about an inch above this place. And even just with the amount of gasoline in this room, the fumes would make this room highly explosive. But do you remember? This is the second time in our show's history a character has flicked a cigarette to light another character on fire. Can you name the other movie? Oh, no, I like I'll give you a hint. Okay. The victim goes, sigh, and the killer goes, Anara, and flicks the cigarette. Oh, and man. it's John Malkovich. What? Con Air, dude. Cyrus the virus. The guy crashes the uh-huh. jet, the little private jet into the, the gas station. Yes. And he crawls out of the plane and then he's. He's double-crossed them. Yeah. And he's, like, trying to plead with Cyrus the virus. And he goes, yes. Sigh! And goes, Anara. And flicks the cigarette. <laughs> did, did we have the conversation then about the possibility of that even working? Uh, Mythbusters did a whole experiment trying to light gasoline with a cigarette and mm-hmm. could not do it. Yeah, I didn't think so. Uh, because don't they... They pull a similar stunt in The Crow, but I think it's a lighter. It's an actual lighter that gets thrown. I watched The Crow, I don't remember how many years ago, and I didn't, it's, it's not good. Did you watch it when it came out? I think I watched, maybe not the whole thing. I, I mm-hmm. definitely feel like I watched some of it when I was young. See, I feel a little bit, like that as i do with demolition man where uh except for the crow for me was formative i went and saw it in the theater uh it it had to be around the same time like 93 94 um and people who missed it might not enjoy it quite as much which is kind of how i felt about demolition man although by the end i was on board i was thinking about that today i was i was thinking if if I had not seen this as a kid, uh, this this wouldn't carry as hard as it does for me. Mainly because of the two-hour runtime. Mm-hmm. This, the pacing of this movie uh, really hampers it. This should be, like, hour 40 tops. The, like, 30 to 40-some-minute chunk where you're pretty much just in the police station... Before, like, before uh, Stallone gets unfrozen is kind of interminable. We do, we do hang around for a while with a lot of side characters dropping a lot of exposition explaining the world we live in. Mm -hmm. Instead of, instead of showing us the world that they live in, uh, this movie really likes to tell you. Yeah, and it's, uh, I feel like parts of the... Uh, production design actually get underplayed like they don't feature them as heavily as I want them to like her does a really good job of like mixing uh, your future tech and your current stuff and kind of has these loving shots of the way they use the computers and stuff Uh, and this I was like like we see a, a weird gun that he gets at one point and I'm like show me more of this shit like I, I want to go deep in this armory <laughs> Oh, dude, that the museum 
is the museum part the the peak of this movie? It it may be. It may be. It's really good, and I love the uh, the fact that when you go into the Hall of Violence, do you think they purposefully chose the font from Doom? For <laughs> oh shit, that is the Doom font, isn't it? Yeah, with the I, crosses looks, and the O's. Yeah, the crosses. It looks so familiar to me. Wow, you are so right. Yeah. Good Paul. I love the the Hall of Violence. Uh, but so thirty. 30 hostages die due to Spartan's actions because he doesn't follow procedure. And so they, uh, they're going to freeze him. And, uh, boy, the, the freezing sequence really held up for me. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I would like to rewatch Austin Powers now, which I have not seen in probably 20 years, just for the warm liquid goo phase complete. But <laughs> there's something funny about seeing... <laughs> Nudie Stallone in a little fetal position, curled up, getting covered in KY jelly. Just drenched in KY jelly. (laughs) And he gets a mouthful of it at one point. I was like, oh, oh, that made me gag. (laughs) And then um, the absurdity of the freeze method with Mm -hmm. that, that, blue orb that drops out of the sil- the silver cylinder. I love stupid shit like that. The my question was why are they like these pucks that they're in? Like you know, in uh Star Wars, Han Solo gets to stand up <laughs> when he gets frozen. Like, you know, you have a person-sized thing. Here, it's kind of like you're cramped up in this little little cylinder and uh why it is a hockey puck yeah yeah and just based off an efficiency packing standpoint if you stand people vertically a la han solo Mm -hmm. you can squeeze so many more frozen people into a small space than if they're a bunch of circles where you'll you're guaranteed to have wasted storage space Unless you lay them on their side. <laughs> nope. You're still going to have. You are still going to have. Yeah. You can't do it. It's inefficient. Oh, two things I forgot to mention earlier. Uh, Wesley Snipes has Beetlejuice pants. <laughs> and then uh, did I totally forgot. But then after that, we get Glenn Shaddix famous as being uh, Otho in, yeah. in Beetlejuice. And he's really fun in this. Um, but. Holy fuck, that fireball explosion in the first scene. Mm-hmm. They definitely blew the budget on that, though, because the fireball at the end of this movie yes. is, is like the shittiest little mat explosion. And it's like, they're like, oh, the cryo prison's gone. And the whole building is clearly still just standing there. It's, it's like they uh, primitively photoshopped a few frames of fire in front of this building. <laughs> but this first explosion is incredible. Yeah. I don't know. I would guess that this is a miniature, maybe? I don't know, but... It looks great, and then in the wreckage as they're walking out, uh, the the chief the chief drops the title for the first time and he's like, yeah, yeah Spartan, you're a real demolition man. <laughs> Something like have that. you have you you've watched all of community? Uh yeah. Yeah. 
So there's an episode where Shirley and Annie become detectives and Abed becomes the generic angry police <laughs> captain. Yes. Yeah. You kids, you guys are out of line and I've had it up to here with your bullshit. Handing your badges and your guns. You're done. And like, that was absolutely who this man was. Yeah. And the, the line is, I've had enough of this demolition man bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude. And then I love that. The title cards are so futuristic for mm-hmm. Wesley and Sly and the title card of the movie, Dimlish, they come in all fancy. And then mm-hmm. after that, it's just fade in. Sandra Bullock. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and now here's the woman. Boring. <laughs> the uh, I was excited for a second when Jesse Ventura's name pops up uh, in the credits. Did it? Yes. Where was he in this? Apparently, he's like one of the frozen uh, cons. Oh, okay. And I, I was like, I, I, th- I thought he was going to be in the movie. And I, I would think I would have recognized him, but... Yeah. Maybe he's the frozen guy who, who's dingus you see in the, the climax. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway, Spartan's fr- frozen for supposed to be 70 years, but in 2032... Uh, Simon Phoenix is up for parole. And, uh, so, but, God, leading up to this, all the future stuff of the graffiti thing popping out of the ground, mm-hmm. spray painting life is with a Z at hell. That's, <laughs> that's pretty dumb. <laughs> and then we have, oh, God. What's your, what's your history with Dennis Leary? Uh, I saved my Larry notes for a little later when he does uh, like two minutes of his stand-up let's, shtick. Let, let's talk about okay <laughs> the Larry of used, it. God, when I used to drive, there was a time when I listened to "No Cure for Cancer" that mm-hmm. stand-up album, and it was around 2006 or so, and I was on road trips, and I listened to it once, maybe twice over the course of a year, and. He's just completely lifted his stand-up material. I, and it's so fucking annoying. Listen to me, Pat. I want to live. I don't want to live in a country where I can say what I want to say. And I want to eat a bucket of butter. And I want to drink cream cheese. And I want to have <laughs> beer and whiskey. And I want to watch football. And I want to put my feet up and smoke a cigar. And it's uh, they just, oh my god, dude. It's And the thing is, back when I didn't know him as a stand-up comedian when I was a kid, I was like, oh, look at this character. Like, he's, like, popping off and, like, yeah, America and, like, freedom and da-da-da. And now I'm just like, shut up, Dennis Leary. Jesus. Uh, I think, so, No Cure for Cancer is, like, early 90s. I was a late arrival to it. And everyone said he completely ripped off Bill. Bill Hicks? Yeah. Uh, which it kind of coincided with, uh, because I was into that in the early nineties for a few years. Uh, and I think around the time that George Carlin came out with, uh, maybe back in town or you're, or you're all diseased. I don't remember which one it is. I think it's back in town, uh, where he, George Carlin went from like having this absurdist and occasionally political point of view uh, where he was like skewering people to just ranting and yelling that I got off 
both of them. I was like, this is too much anger in my life. I can't handle like we're we're constantly raging against the machine, guys. It's it's a bit much. <laughs> it's it's just annoying, dude. It's it's just in it, especially in our modern age, that attitude is just really grating on me. Um, yeah, it's part of the reason I liked our next movie, I would say. So, uh, the guy who plays in the police station, where we have the boring police station part here, the guy who plays Chief Earl, the bald guy with the those weird-ass framed glasses, he's pretty funny, actually. I, I enjoy his over-the-top, pompous, dickhead future attitude. And then we get introduced to uh, Sandra Bullock as Huxley. And I think she does a great job in this movie, too. Um... She takes a very difficult role, I think, and makes it really charming. I I totally agree. Uh, Because she's the overly excited sidekick who's also a love interest who we also need to buy into being a badass towards the end. It's very tricky. And trying to play off Stallone and have chemistry with him. Good Lord. What a task did her, uh, her glee for fictional violence remind you of Nick Frost in hot fuzz? No, but yes. Now. Yeah, a- absolutely. That's a I great like, pull. She would, she would have loved bad boys too. Like, Oh my God. She definitely, I was, had bad boys two existed. We would have seen that poster on her wall instead of lethal weapon three. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, I also like that she has, you know, as we all did in the nineties, a fake can of nuts with a spring snake inside of it. (laughs) Everyone in the nineties loved the fake nuts. Uh, we have a miss congeniality pre union. You ever seen that movie? Yeah, it's been a while, but yeah. Uh, Benjamin Bratt, I just had to look up his name. He's uh, her love interest in that one. And um, he's, the, he's the nerdy cop in this. Who turns also into a badass. <laughs> his, his, his turn at the end of this movie comes out of nowhere. There's been no indication leading up to it. And suddenly he's right there next to Dennis Leary saying fucking A. <laughs> Where did this come from? Uh, I love uh, that Dennis Leary's gang looks like rejects from the Mad Max universe. And yeah, when Benjamin yeah. Bratt dresses up like them, he's like, he's still clean faced. He's not even dirty, really. He's got like a couple, I think, token uh, smears of dust on his face. <laughs> and he's you just smiling and grinning. I, I'm pretty sure they just went to a Raiders game. And bought some of the costumes off of Raiders fans for this movie. <laughs> uh, so we get to the Simon Simon Phoenix probation hearing, and uh, he's talking, and he says, "I had to put subtitles on because they go, do you have anything else to say?'" And he goes, "Yeah, teddy bear." And then the handcuffs unlock. They. This is, they, uh, I feel like the writer had no idea how to figure out how to get him free from future, futuristic confinement. 
Mm-hmm. So they came up with this bullshit idea that there's a magic word that unlocks all handcuffs, and it's teddy bear. Yeah, I don't, I don't love that. I I didn't catch what he said. Uh, I thought it was like maybe it's some not, kind of magic incantation, but I, no. I thought he said some weird, like magical phrase. Also, no, it's teddy bear for sure. Nice. Uh, the, Dude, the, the eyeball part when I was a kid freaked <laughs> i i freaked me out because he he like he needs the eye scanner to get out, and so he takes a uh, a fountain pen, mm-hmm. and you see him like moving towards the probation guy. And then we see the eyeball on the pen. That, as a kid, because I, I watched this movie, this came out in 93. I probably watched this movie in, like, I don't know, 95? Okay. 96, maybe? So I was 9, 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, again, uh, first boobs. Maybe. This or Under Siege? Uh, lethal Weapon. Okay. It was de- definitely the opening of Lethal Weapon. Okay. Um, oh, I had a question, but I never bothered to look up who the character is. Uh, Bill Cobbs. Yes. Did they, did they base that Half-Life 3 character on him, or was he in Half-Life 3? Because it just... There's a character in that game that just yeah. sounds, sounds like him and has a resemblance to him. And I was just curious if that was. Um, I don't think that's him, but that is a good call. And uh, that brings up the like the the extras and the, the secondary characters in this movie. Everyone is like. Oh yeah, I recognize that guy. The the chief with the weird glasses, the chief from 1996 you recognize, Rob Schneider. <laughs> is in there somewhere. I f- Dude, I forgot that they give Rob Schneider the big three seashells line. Oh. And he's terrible. He goes, he doesn't know how to use the three seashells. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, shut the fuck up. Also, I just saw some... Some add on something where it's like Rob Schneider's new stand-up. He mm. tells it like it is, where words don't mean what they used to, and you can't just say anything anymore. S- sponsored by Fox Nation. It's like, oh, Jesus Christ. That's that's yeah. so lazy and just bad. And c- Can you fuckers just get a life? Uh, his new special and Roseanne Barr's special dropped on the same day. Oh. <laughs> or do I smell a double feature? <laughs> it's it's um, a good day for people who use the word woke as a per- <laughs> pejorative. Yeah. Do you think Schneider and Stallone just hit it off on set and that's what led to him being in Judge Dredd? <laughs> uh, uh, is he in Judge Dredd? Oh, you've never seen Judge Dredd? No, and uh, the other night... Actually, I guess a couple weeks ago, because I stopped watching Dread to watch our movies for the last episode, because I was just bored, and I was like, I'm going to watch Dread, and I was like, maybe I should do a double feature of Dread and Judge Dread. Ooh, 
That would be a glaring contrast of a really good movie and a really <laughs> shitty movie. <laughs> I was really excited for Judge Dredd to come out in theater, and I made someone in our in my family take me to it, and they fell asleep in theater. And I think it was one of those movies where, as a kid, I was doing hard work convincing myself I was having a good time. Mm, yes. Uh, in oh, we get the fallout from uh, Simon's escape, Phoenix's escape, right? And you spend this long period of time with everybody, all the the police officers, as Sandra Bullock is looking up stuff on the computer. <laughs> Just typing things in. She's she's looking things up on her computer with her 90s ass eyebrows. Yeah. She got those thin uh-huh. penciled on eyebrows of the 90s. It's pretty funny. Um, uh, but yeah. The, so they look up the 187. Murder, death, kill is iconic. Identify code 187. MDK. Murder, death, kill, murder, death, kill, murder, death, kill. Murder, death, kill. Last recorded offense, September 25th, 2010. Initiate search. When, when I told Elizabeth I was going to watch this, she just goes, 187, murder, death, kill, murder, death, kill. <laughs> I feel like that's what most people take away from this movie is murder, death, kill. Uh, I, it, I had heard of that. I had heard of the three seashells and I've heard of Taco Bell. Those were my. Okay. Can I. Go on a rant here. Absolutely. I pirated this movie. Mm -hmm. So I get what I deserve. Uh Uh-huh. Apparently, I got the European version (laughs) of this movie because they're driving and Stallone's like, man, I could really use a pizza right now. Let's go. And And then Bullock goes, oh, John Spartan, Pizza Hut was the only restaurant to survive the restaurant. It's Pizza Hut! Mm-hmm. They, they, they f- like, photoshopped Pizza Hut onto one of the cars when they drive in, but then when they walk into the restaurant, you can clearly still see on the glass of the restaurant Taco Bell Taco logos, Bell. and then they're served Taco Bell food. And I'm uh-huh. like, what is going on here? Uh, yeah, I read that, that the... Because Taco Bell isn't as popular... And they were both owned by Pepsi at the time. So they were just like, okay, we'll change it to, pe- to Pizza Hut. See, Europeans, it's just like, oh, they're, that's a rare time where I feel like an American movie says Europeans aren't smart enough to get this. <laughs> I feel like normally it goes the other way. Yeah, the Europeans aren't going to get our uh, high, <laughs> highbrow Taco <laughs> Bell references. Yeah. <laughs> You are an incredibly sensitive man who inspires joy, joy feelings and all those around you. Okay, this is a tie between both movies today, right? Yeah, for yeah. sure. <laughs> You're talking to an AI to cheer you up? I, I kind of liked this, this little computer booth where you just, you just go over there just to kind of get a pick-me-up. It's just like, I, I, computer, I need a boost. I was worried that it was uh, a suicide booth from Futurama. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, it could definitely have gone that way. Uh, oh, dude, so when, when Wesley Snipes goes in, and during his time, oh, part, part of the thing that they do when they freeze people is they change their brain chemistry, and so we see this by Wesley Snipes 
being a hacker. And then while he's hacking, he sees Edgar Friendly, the mm-hmm. rebel up, uh, uprising leader's photo. And in real ham mode, we zoom in on the eye, and there's a skull, and the words like murder, death, killer, <laughs> spiraling around. It's so corn. <laughs> uh, this straddles the um, Lawnmower Man visuals uh, era, I think. Totally, yeah. Had this movie lied, uh, relied more on that early 90s CGI, it would have looked Lawnmower Man. Yeah, that's totally where they would have gone. Um, the <laughs> All of the cops, they're... I hate all of these nerds and they need someone to just come in and like, just shake up what they're doing and really, really change their minds about, uh, about this life they're living. They're all, they're the biggest nerds. And I mean, the best example of that is when they approach Simon Phoenix and they ask their little iPad what to do <laughs> it's like, in a firm voice, tell him to lie down. In a firmer voice, tell him to lie down and say, or else. (laughs) (laughs) And Uh, everyone is sitting there watching on the vid screen, uh, watching this interaction, and they're like, happy. They're just, they're filled with joy, joy. These people are filled with joy, joy every day, and it is kind of fun to see their little utopia get fucked up. Yeah, I kind of liked how like mean spirited <laughs> the 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 action in the movie becomes, uh, and ultimately the you know we'll get to the the climax, but the way that things shake out, I appreciate it a lot. So while they're so after they see him kill or at least incapacitate all these cops, they're like, uh, Bill Cobbs is like, we 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 need a man who can fight. The evil with evil or what <laughs> and John Spartan and they look up John Spartan's uh file and this made me legitimately laugh out loud is there's a news report where John Spartan is carrying a, a little girl out of a burning building and a news reporter runs up to him and goes how can you justify destroying a seven million dollar mini mall for a girl whose ransom is only twenty five thousand and the little girl goes hey fuck you lady <laughs> <laughs> so good how can you justify destroying a seven million dollar mini mall to rescue a girl whose ransom is only twenty five thousand dollars fuck you lady good answer uh i don't want to live in this utopia though no smoking no drinking no contact sports no spicy foods no Mm -hmm. salt like are they just eating bland ass food in the future so I know, you know, Taco Bell isn't the height of cuisine, but you can get a spicy sauce at Taco Bell. You can get some some salty ground up meat at Taco Bell. That's what they do. Apparently not in the future. Yeah. Imagine Taco Bell without salt. It'd just be mush. They're just serving <laughs> you they're serving you mush inside of a crunchy thing or a rolled up piece of mush. That's all <laughs> Taco Bell would have if it wasn't for salt. Um, so as we're moving now towards the the museum, because he's up, he's gonna get a gun. He's after a gun. Trust me, or whatever. Um, what'd you think about all 
all oldies are just commercials. It felt inaccurate, like, and then I realized how much time, especially in the early internet days, um, where people would, like, there were whole blogs and uh, Tumblr sites and whatnot devoted to retro uh, commercials and things. Well, I mean, every once in a while, I'll see a Nickelodeon commercial from about right around this time, 93, mm-hmm. 94. And yeah, it, it, some of those every once in a while will hit me hard with nostalgia for that time. And that, uh, the idea that everyone would sing along with it <laughs> is a little beyond dorky, but yeah, it kind of worked. It kind of worked for me. They also kind of harmonized pretty well on yeah. the hot dog song. I was impressed by that. Ooh, boy. I want to say what seems to be your boggle all the time now. <laughs> the guy walks up to Simon as he's trying to kick through the glass to get to the guns. Yeah. What seems to be your boggle? It's... uh kind of one of the moments where the future speak didn't make me cringe quite as much. But yeah, a lot of the, the, the joy, joy and double talk that they do is a little like, okay. What what do you think about their high fives where they stop six inches from each other and then do a wax on wax off (laughs) with their hands? Because, uh, human contact is forbidden. You can't have it no more. Well, I mean, as we did learn in COVID when no one was shaking hands, mm-hmm. I feel like people really didn't get sick. I got, I barely got sick ever during that yeah. time of ma- masks and like no touching. Yeah. No touching. <laughs> um, uh, so we get that fight in the museum. I thought it was cool. And I wanted to say Schwarzenegger. Stallone shoots the the big spike, the big obelisk thing out of the top of the ceiling and crashes through the glass floor and they both fall down into this excavated 90s scene of Los Angeles. Uh, yeah, it reminded me, because they fall in that car, uh, is it, it's Street Fighter where, where you beat up the car, right? Oh, definitely. <laughs> oh, God, that minigame, beat up the car. And then remember the one in Mortal Kombat where you'd have to punch through crystals and diamonds? No. What what era of Mortal Kombat was that, though? Might have been after. Might, that might have been two. I don't remember. Okay. Before we... Before I forget, though, how do the three seashells work? I, You know what? I don't want to know. That, that requires me thinking of Stallone u- utilizing the three seashells. I think... I think it's bidet controls. But instead of just like buttons or switches, we want to get a little bit classier in the bathroom. And so like one button extends the bidet, Mm -hmm. one button washes, and then the third retracts it. I don't know. I got nothing. Maybe it's a temperature control because I Mm, I know they have that on, on the nicer ones. Have you ever used a bidet? No. I haven't either, and I'm real curious about it. You're you're 
You'd say you're bidet curious. By bidet, bidet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, boy. Um, so, Simon, after he escapes this, this gunfight, the gunfights are fine. The violence is fine. It's... It's shot well enough. It's it's very of the time, I would say. I think that the director is not great at capturing it. Uh, but yeah, it's also not bad. It's just it's kind of bland for what's supposed to be an action comedy. I the action scenes are not what people remember from this movie. Yeah, and it's pretty obvious why, but. So Simon escapes and he can't shoot the main bad guy because of his brainwashing or whatever. And then uh, I don't remember why they're going to dinner after that, but that's when we learn that there's the Schwarzenegger library because Schwarzenegger was president. And this is before he became governor of my wonderful state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What a time to live in California. (laughs) And uh, yeah, then we get, sad pizza hut i was i didn't like seeing taco bell being made all fancy and tiny portioned i feel like they did taco bell dirty by doing that it's so the joke is that all restaurants are taco bell the way that she says it is like every restaurant is now taco bell not that taco bell is the only place left but it implies that taco bell there's different levels of Taco Bell, right? Like you still have oh, a fast food okay. Taco Bell. And then you also would have, I want to see, although the scene where he gets a burger is great. Like that was that going through that that's, layer is one of my favorite parts of the movie. <laughs> that's pretty great. How do you think they distinguish between a, a high tier Taco Bell and a, a Taco Bell? Well, when you're going to the high tier one, you know, your waiters are going to have really puffy sleeves. <laughs> it's it's a sign of class yes uh that's also the scene where i noticed uh i mean the white shock in the front of glenn shaddix's hair is one thing but he's also shaved around the ear like shaved to the skin in a little patch around his ears in like the weirdest design choice i've seen it's i mean simon phoenix has that too Oh, does he? Simon Phoenix's hair definitely is like cut above his ears. It's well, no, it, but his is more like, uh, not like a fade, but it is, it goes up higher. Glenn's is like, it just to cut out for his ears. So his yeah. little ear flaps could like smack against the sides of his head if you wanted to. <laughs> I feel bad making fun of an old person, but I recently watched Jimmy Johnson get inducted into the Cowboys Hall of Fame and, mm-hmm. uh, that his wig looked really good, except for around the ears. It just mm. looked fucked. It just <laughs> looked weird. <laughs> um. So Taco Bell, we get the whole Mad Max raid, and uh, oh, these these delinquents ruining our utopia. But they just want food, and Stallone buries them all in a tent or whatever, and. Now Huxley wants to bone. And this this leads to a pretty iconic scene for this movie. Uh, the Huxley, part of what gets her going 
is that Stallone delivers one-liners as he's beating these guys up. Like, she comments on, uh, I, you know, whatever fancy future language she uses. But his joke is, I hope you appreciate this every second of the rest of your life. Both of them. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good line. That's a yeah. good line. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder. It's bad, but it's pretty good. I wonder. Do did Stallone? Was there a guy who did these lines for Stallone and Schwarzenegger? Like, is there just a dude who that was his job? Like, uh, you know, when he when Schwarzenegger throws the guy over the the balcony and uh, Commando delivers his line, stuff like that. Like, is there a guy who that was his job as punching up scripts for one liners? Yeah, or when he shoots an alligator and a racer and says, your luggage. <laughs> oh. um, so they want a bone and she puts the helmet on him, the VR sex helmet. <clears throat> Excuse me. But she also hands him a, a white towel. Yeah. Is that for his cum? Yep, it totally is. Although, What's going on in this movie, man? Although, yeah. I, this was so uncomfortable of a scene for me to watch as a kid. Oh my god, this was weird. <laughs> uh, the the flashes that he's getting when he closes his eyes yeah. reminded me of Infinity Pool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, like, it wasn't like the flashes trippy. he was getting. It was the zoom-ins on Stallone be like, oh. <laughs> Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so uncomfortable. Uh, even today, day. even today, I felt I felt awkward sitting alone watching this movie. Yeah, as they're doing, he thinks that they're going to do the wild mumbo and the hunka chunka. The hunka chunka. What the fuck does that mean? <laughs> oh boy. So yeah, one of the one of the real accurate predictions this movie has is video chat as you and i sit here talking on a on a live camera yeah um and uh but i like that you also get but you still have voicemail you still have an answering machine mm -hmm. and so people people send each other video chat answering like answering messages or whatever and so that's where we get this naked chick leaving the wrong number message <laughs> Uh, my next, yeah, my next note is about the going down, down into the underground scene. If you got anything else. Oh, I just thought that, uh, the little bit of comedy with him, like opening his care package for being defrosted and it has the ball of yarn in it. Yeah. And as yeah, he's yeah. watching the message, he starts like it very poorly knitting, right? Like. He's wrapping it around his arm and kind of doing this whole thing with it. And then when he walks out the next morning, he's got a whole sweater. <laughs> that cracked me up. He's like, I, I feel bad about last night. I made you a sweater. <laughs> That's pretty good. I, I like that one. And I'm surprised that Stallone would even allow a knitting needle in his hands on film mm -hmm. at this point in time with how insecure he was in his masculinity. Uh, I, I kind of thought that everything in that box was going to become a weapon for him at some point. 
then then any the knitting needle should definitely have come back as a weapon. Yeah, like they, like they take his other weapons away, and at some point he like jabs somebody with a knitting needle, and yeah. uh, and what a commentary after Halloween uses the knitting needle as a commentary on like the matriarchal struggle against men to for then to have Stallone as like a ultra masculine man being like I'm I'm utilizing my feminine energy as my weapon now you should uh, see in the next movie we talk about how men can definitely have feminine traits as well it's all tied together as we're told repeatedly in the next one (laughs) Uh, yeah everyone wearing sunglasses as they go into the underground, seem seem like a pain for filming. Like because oh, they were reflective, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure you you can spot the the lights when Benjamin Bratt is like turning around and stuff. Uh, yeah. What a nightmare that would be to just reflections in general. There's some. There was a. I think it was in high school we watched Hamlet with Kenneth Branagh. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I believe there was a scene that takes place in a room like full of mirrors, and our teacher pointed out like, well, how would, how do you think they could possibly film this? And what they did was, it was something like they they turned when the camera wasn't pointed at a mirror, or when it was pointed at one mirror behind them, they they turned a mirror so that it would reflect a different angle, and you wouldn't catch the camera, something like that. But uh, that's. That's one of those little like movie making things that I'd never think about, but must be so hard to avoid reflections or avoid camera shadow or mm-hmm. um, the boom mic shadow, all those things. Yeah. The amount of times I have seen uh, like set deck come on because you're getting a shadow from a framed picture or a mirror or like a reflection. Uh, and everyone's talking about how to fix it. And then someone comes up with like a little ball of gaff tape and puts it under one corner and it just changes the angle enough. So, so that you're not catching the reflection anymore, but it doesn't look Oh, awkward. I gotcha. Yeah. 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 Just enough that you don't see it on the wall, but yep. the, ref- the angle is different now. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh yeah. Uh, so going for this movie has some like a weird, there's a lot of Spanish in this movie and at one, when Simon Phoenix is in his probation hearing, he's repeating everything that the probation officer says to him in Spanish. <laughs> and then Stallone speaks Spanish. I, is this just like a commentary on, oh, it's Los Angeles, so everyone's kind of Spanish speaking. I, I just, it was weird. Or I thought maybe Simon Phoenix was cast as a Latino villain at some point before they got snipes. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Is it something that they programmed when they were dropping their other skills uh, when they're frozen in goop? Oh, maybe. Because, like, uh, yeah, Stallone, Stallone has no problem ordering a burger and a, a, burger and a beer and trading a Rolex. I like the, uh, I like the performance by the, the burger cook woman. Mm-hmm. The, uh... La carne uh, de la rata. Yes. And rat rat burger, well, not bad. Yeah, he just keeps eating it. <laughs> Although after everything else, uh, I get it when he like swigs that beer and mows into that burger, he just houses that burger, and I'm like, 
Yeah, get it. Well, after having had no salt or no spice, yeah, I'd imagine a greasy wrap burger and a beer. Pretty good. Yeah. Uh, somewhere around this time, Simon starts to thaw everyone, and so we get all the whole the whole gang back. <laughs> like that, I think it's later in the movie, but he goes, Jeffrey Dahmer. I love that guy. Yeah. <laughs> <And they're>, it's like, <laughs> but Simon Phoenix is going to have Jeffrey Dahmer cannibalizing this utopian society. Uh, when he gets his his ragtag band of dudes, right? Um, they're all he he puts them all in the Mad Max armor, and then they're sitting around a pool table, eating pretzels and drinking beer, and like you see some of the pretzels fall into the pockets of the pool table at one point, And people are like slopping their beers all over. And I just found that upsetting. That that's rude. Like these are miscreants who are going to go out and kill people, but respect that pool table a little more, please. You know how hard it is to refelt a pool table. Yeah, exactly. I don't. Cause it's it, hard. Yeah. Never done it before. Don't want to. If I, if I'm ever in that position, I'll hire a guy. I also thought it was funny that they unthawed, were these women who are also in the black (laughs) armor who are just strutting around as eye candy, were they also cryo prisoners? They they just needed groupies. (laughs) And, but (laughs) the women, I thought maybe then we'd get like, oh, we're going to have like kind of. Amazon warrior women in shoulder pat. Nope. Nope. Not a single woman in sight except for Sandra Bullock. Uh, What'd you think of the car chase? Wait, first. Oh, Stallone breaks Jack Black's wrist. I thought I'm, I, I, <laughs> there was a split second where I was like, was that Jack Black with kind of spiky hair? Yeah. You see him in two shots. I'm it pretty was sure. very brief, yeah. Yeah, and I was like, wait a second. And I had to look it up, because I was like, that... But it makes sense. Like, I guess in this era, that's the kind of roles he would get. Well, I mean, based off of his hit performance in Airborne, the rollerblading movie, I bet that's how he oh. got this role. Yeah. Uh, Have you seen when... Airborne? Yes. I did see Airborne. Oh, <laughs> Okay. About <laughs> to, to explode. Uh, the when was uh the jackal? Because isn't that a few few years after? I feel like that was ninety six or ninety eight. Okay. I just remember Bruce Willis had a remote control gun in the trailer, and he did his like Bruce Willis laugh. Yeah. Never saw it, though. Uh, I remember really enjoying it at the time. Do you like Day of the Jackal? Yes. That's, that's right in that pocket of um, cozy uh, spy kind of stuff. I was thinking that um, you and I both recently watched Fincher's The Killer, and we both really liked it. I, I may mm-hmm. have liked it even a little more than you. Um, I think... The killer is is the day of the jackal that I want to watch. The day of the jackal; those seventies movies are just too slow and sparse for me. Mm-hmm. And so, the killer felt like a modern day 
but still slow and sparse 70s-ish spy assassin movie. I can see it. The uh I I feel like uh I didn't make any notes, but I could do a whole thing on the on the killer. How it fits into Fincher's filmography, that he's commenting on everything else that he's made up to that point. Uh, Also, while like the fact that he takes trashy airport novels and elevates them (laughs) to this high art place is just amazing. Another connection is the fact that Elliot Goldenthal did the music for Demolition Man and had previously done the music for Alien 3. And Fincher was one of the guys who suggested that this director take this job. Interesting. Yeah. So, like, they were in that same commercial uh, world. And I thought that was really... And I think it's the same cinematographer as well as Alien 3. I, I could actually see that as far as these movies having a bit of a shared aesthetic. Yeah. Though Alien 3 is dirtier and grimier i mean obviously we're in a utopia in this future versus that future where we're in a all men's penal colony (laughs) with with a heavy lice infestation (laughs) (laughs) um but so the car chase i like that earlier in the movie we see john get into a a future car and he looks at all the gadgets it's like i i can't do this simon phoenix gets into a future car and it's just like Driving off straight away, no problems. But we, of course, then John finds an Oldsmobile, and they take an elevator up, and it smashes through the ground, which was ridiculous. That whole elevator shaft yes. exploding. Um, but a, a, a pretty fun little car chase here. What do you think? Um, I liked. I don't remember what the stunt is called, but when uh the person is hanging on the roof and then on the hood. Is there like, there like stuntmen have a name for that? Yeah, they talk about it in uh, rodeo. Doing the rodeo? Are you going to do a rodeo it on this one? Kind of makes sense. Bull riding. Uh, they they talk about it in uh, Tarantino's Half of Grindhouse because that's oh, what Zoe yeah. Bell does. Death, like that's death proof. Death proof. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I was confused because Phoenix has this great idea when uh. Spartan is on top of the car. He's shooting through the roof. Yeah. Like, like right up through the ceiling. And that seems like a good idea. Then for some reason, he opens the gullwing door and tries to crane his wrist around to get a different angle to shoot him. And I was like, that, that seems bad. That door is just going to slam on your wrist. Uh, he can grab your gun. Now it's, it's a, it's a bad move. I think Simon Phoenix is his own worst enemy because it seems like sometimes he gets bored doing one thing and then just immediately abandons the plan to try to do another thing and never stops to think about the reaper. You know, this guy does not think about consequences. Have you, have, have you thought about <laughs> this Simon Act- Phoenix guy? During this sequence, I, w- I was thinking of him as the Joker. As to- like, absolutely, especially after he like gets the whole gang back together, and he's just like an agent of chaos with no motive, and <laughs> and then he's like, yes. "Oh, the, those dirty hostages from the start of the movie—they were already dead." <laughs> uh, when he has his gang together and they all like raise their beers, I was thinking of that uh, 
there's a Simpsons clip where uh, they're taking over Camp Krusty. <laughs> the guy goes, gentlemen, to evil. And they clink their glasses. <laughs> uh, so eventually Stallone, in a really lame way, because he doesn't get the upper hand, Phoenix has him and is about to hit his, like, drag his head on the concrete. And mm-hmm. then Stallone's just like, oh yeah, well, no. And throws him <laughs> out of the car for, I, I don't know. But anyways... Seeing Stallone crash this car and then blasting Sylvester Stallone with just gallons of foam in his face. <laughs> it's like between the KY jelly and this foam scene. It's like you can really see some shots of Stallone having a bad time. <laughs> I like that the foam like hardens and turns Harden- to styrofoam. Hardens and somehow consumes the door of the car and replaces it or something? No, they knocked knocked the door off earlier. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, it it flipped Uh, down the highway in the earlier sequence. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah. But, um, I mean, maybe maybe safety foam is a good idea, though. I thought it was pretty cool. Maybe this is the next airbag. It's somewhere in here that, um... We kind of get the whole reveal because Snipes hasn't been able to kill the guy who's in charge of the Utopia. And then he breaks his programming and throws him into a fire fireplace, <laughs> which cracked me up. Uh, and uh, Snipes says, uh, you can't take away people's rights, right to be assholes. Which I was like, that's 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 I think that line was straight out of Ghostbusters, too. Remember when they try to tell New Yorkers to be nice? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you can't tell New Yorkers to be nice. We take pride in being dickheads. <laughs> I don't remember that line, but that's pretty good. That, that The mayor says it. Something. I don't know. I haven't seen Ghostbusters. I don't know if either Ghostbusters movie would hold up for me. Mm, I do love the first one still. I haven't seen the second one in a long, long time. Uh, but I remember when I was a kid, I loved the dancing toaster. Don't remember that. They they put the pink slime in the toaster as they're doing their tests on it early on. Uh, and they play the music and it goes ping, ping, ping. And it starts like jiving uh, a little bit. Gotcha. Yeah. The, the the river of pink slime and that long haired German man. Just something about that movie is upsetting. <laughs> and I don't know what it is. Yeah. It's he's actually scarier than anything in the first one, probably. Probably, except I remember the first one scaring me. I, I believe mm-hmm. it was the, the chair scene with the mm-hmm. arms, the dog arms or whatever, demon arms coming out of the chair. The uh, On the commentary for that, uh, they talk about the fact that when they first showed like a, a test screening, they didn't have all the, the visual effects done. And there's the scene right before that where uh, Dana opens up the refrigerator and you see, like, it's a portal to another dimension. Okay. And they didn't have that footage. And so it just went to black and said, like, um, effects not finished. Like, on a title card. And yeah. somebody in the theater screamed. <laughs> <laughs> like, that was still an affecting moment. And I was like, that's, it would be great if that was the response. It felt like when, uh, you know, old-timey people would jump out of the way of the train pulling up to the station on the movie screen. That's amazing, because in American movie, Mark goes... 
Nobody's ever paid money to go see a ticket and then they put up on the screen like an apology of sorry we didn't film this. <laughs> Nobody buys a ticket to an excuse. That God, what a line. What yeah. a fucking line. God, yeah, that movie. <laughs> um Huxley says, take this job and shuffle it. Another line mm. that I really appreciate, and that's good. And I like that that's Stallone. Cute. Stallone's reaction there good. Close enough. Um, and she learned all of her ass kicking from Jackie Chan movies. Another fun little reference. Yeah. Um, so at this point, we're basically in the, the final big fight at the cryo prison and Spartan's going to stop Phoenix. And, uh, I thought the fact that John Spartan gets plucked off the ground, like by an arcade claw machine (laughs) Is really uh-huh. fucking is really funny and really dumb. Uh, this is also there's a couple scenes that I noticed, uh, but this one especially where when they're like throwing him around in the claw thing, uh, Stallone's double keeps throwing his arms over his face. <laughs> like okay. anytime you would see his face <laughs> on camera, it's like it just so yeah. happens that he happens to be obscured, yeah. and it, that also made me think of Austin Powers when they're doing the fruit. Like yeah. hiding, hiding the breasts and everything. I heard that's where Drake got the idea to do the dap. Stallone's devil in this movie. Uh-huh. Dap or dab? I'm, I'm really, you know, honestly, I'm proud that I said the wrong <laughs> word. Because <laughs> you dap, you dap someone you up. You dap, yes. <laughs> okay. I'm 37, folks, okay? I'm not hip. I He shouldn't know these things. I'm not hip. Just my hip is bad, though. I forgot to replace that. Wow. Um, target practice. Stallone cuts the nitrogen line and then freezes the arm and shatters it. It's, it's dumb. Whatever. Uh, oh, He punches it so hard it falls apart. But it, <laughs> it doesn't just fall apart. apart. It, like shatters into a dozen pieces it's, yeah it, he's so strong um so and then i don't know what gun simon phoenix picks up here it's raiden's superpowers from mortal <laughs> Kombat. seemingly he becomes uh-huh. he becomes the god of lightning and it's just shooting lightning bolts across this room and uh i it took me a minute to remember how the hell does Spartan kill Simon Phoenix? I could not. And then I was like, oh, the fucking ice wand. You get. So this whole little part when uh, Phoenix is like shooting at the wall and you see Stallone jump out of the way and he's doing a Stallone face. It's like a slow motion. Like, oh, you know, his his one side of his mouth is all open uh, and he's twisted and you can hear him yelling. But Phoenix shoots a water line and I was like, Oh, this is mirroring the opening. When he stabs all the gas barrels and there's gas all over the place and it ends in fire. Now we end in ice. Wow. Yeah. So this movie's good. Yeah. It's, it's a 10 out of 10. That's, that's about as good as screenwriting can get right there in my book. Yeah, it has uh, rhyming bookends. Chekhov's Ice Wand. <laughs> anyway, another 
thing I don't understand what happened with this release, but there was they cut a line at the end of this movie. So Phoenix is about to stab him with some kind of bullshit and Stallone smashes the ice wand on the ground and jumps on the swinging arm to safety and Phoenix slowly gets consumed and becomes an ice cube and then I recall John Spartan saying heads up it was cut out of my version really does he he's he started to say a line he was like oh hey feet and then it just like cut to him cutting kicking his head off <laughs> right, right before he smashes his head i laughed so hard watching that it was great uh that's sad uh, that you wesley don't get the one-liner though wesley snipes's head shattering into <laughs> dozens of pieces yeah it's great uh, the, the jason x death totally yeah you know i still feel like the death in jason x that often gets so overlooked is the room where, for some reason, there's a gigantic corkscrew sticking up out of the ground. <laughs> yeah. For who knows what reason. And Jason throws somebody's body onto it, and they slowly they, spin yeah. around and around. Uh, and this is where you get a little bit uh, of the exterior of the prison, and it looks kind of like that effect when the Death Star explodes. Uh, and then there's just like a little fireball and it's in the distance and it doesn't really look like the building's on fire, but they put a little wreckage there to kind of make it seem like there's some sort of problems. It's, it's, yeah, they, I think they ran out of money for this final shot here. That's, uh, James Gunn, I think it was tweeted something earlier about how you should spend like two-thirds of your budget on your on the last act or something uh and i was like that's smart filmmaking (laughs) that does make sense yeah uh and yeah we basically the movie's basically over that the cryo prison is no more and uh what is the what does the police chief say he's like how 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 are we going to live anymore and then and then we get is it leary who's like Oh, we're going to eat cheeseburgers and drink beer and be all right. Let's go get <laughs> fucked up right now. I just like, oh boy, this <laughs> And and Stallone just goes, "You'll meet somewhere in the middle and figure it out." <laughs> Cuz Stallone in this movie has very clearly been a centrist and a moderator <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> and the last line of the movie, "How do those damn three seashells work?" <sighs> I I hated that. What? I didn't need that as the callback. The the idea of them like walking off into the distance in this like stupid comic book ending totally would have worked and then that happens. I'm like, I don't need a poop joke. It's okay. It's I don't I don't think of the three seashells as a poop joke. More of a technology joke. But they mm. are yeah, I got you. I got you. Okay. So, so there that was demolition man huh uh well you're missing your favorite part of the movie uh-oh the theme song oh dude i oh my last my last <laughs> note is oh god 
this credit song is awful. It's horrendous. Uh, now, I wasn't familiar with this version. I know the version from Synchronicity. I went through a big uh, The Police phase, like, 20-some years ago. Yeah. Uh, when I was driving taxi around. Like, I would listen to The Police. It was... I don't know why it struck me, you know, like, 20-some years too late to like, get into The Police. But I really loved them. And... I like the other version because it doesn't have the screaming vocals that this one does. <laughs> like that, that background, uh, whoever this, did that. This <laughs> sounded like nothing coming through. It's yeah. the weirdest mix. And it just, I think sting outside of the police is terrible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, he's, he's a horrendous artist when he doesn't have his band to to back him up and maybe to tell him to knock it off with the bullshit. Well, this I mean it was a police song. Was it? That he like I, that I, he redid. I, think I saw in the credits it was just I think it was just accredited to Sting. He he probably wrote it um and this version is him and it's like a remix with other vocalists and that more uh 90s kind of almost hip hop uh like production on top of it like that slickness of the like mainstream hip hop like crappy hip hop production yeah. on top of it uh and that that video you posted though where Sting is like shirtless playing the bass <laughs> is pretty amazing <laughs> oh but it's so bad and that one song by Sting. Do you think the Russians love their children too? Like, oh, mm. dude, come on! That this is ridiculous. Come on, bud, go uh, go delay your orgasm for seven hours and stop making this bullshit. I I do give him a pass for a few songs on the Ten Summoners Tales, uh, especially "Peace of My Heart." Is it "Peace of My Shape of My Heart"? Uh, I like that song. But yes, he's overly earnest in a very cloying way. Uh, Fields of Gold is police or sting? Sting. It's okay, often well, there's, well. there's there's one of the few okay. in, in my book uh, that I like. But anyway, Demolition Man. Uh, pacing was off, but the future stuff is fun. The action isn't great. But I, I, I had a good time, especially because Snipes and Bullock really elevate it for me. So it's a three and a half. It's, it's a good time. I enjoy it. And it's got that nostalgia tied into it. it it's fine. It's good. Yeah. Uh, I think once you get past that, that like the first little bit, I think that first action scene and the museum action scenes are the kind of the best action pieces but the 30 minutes between them i don't like and that's when everybody all the the future cops are being twerpy and all that kind of stuff um it's kind of annoying but overall by the end i was on board with this and uh three and a half stars awesome i'm I'm glad you liked it i was i was a little worried that this may be really tied into nostalgia and it 
without that, it wouldn't really work. But yeah, I, 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 I do I, kind of think it is. But it I've is. been in this mode where, like, I've been watching uh, our future guest, uh, Joe Sarah. Uh, I guessed it on his podcast covering the Bad Boys films. Okay. And so I'm like in this mode for big, dumb, mean spirited action <laughs> with corny one liners and stuff. And it kind of works. It there is it's a bit of a comfort blanket to settle into a, an action movie from this era where there's there's stakes, but they're not they're not real. The stakes aren't real. Nothing bad is going to happen. And they're not saving the universe. No. no. Yeah. And you can just kind of turn your brain off a little, laugh at some of the corny stuff and just just have a good time with it. It doesn't doesn't have to be high art or push genre or have 12 minute long solo shots following our it's just like just let it be a dumb stupid action movie i like that there's no uh there's no lore for simon phoenix and john spart like we don't know anything about them before they are in that warehouse and phoenix lights him on fire and it's like it's very clear, like as we get to know Simon Phoenix, oh, there's there's nothing to get about this guy. Yeah, <laughs> he, I don't. He has no plan except just to cause chaos in a very <laughs> in, in a very Joker way, as you said. Yeah. Uh, you want to take a break, and after that, we'll talk about her. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Are you okay? Destruction. Just a loud water bottle. Okay. Welcome back from the break. Up next, we're going to be talking about Her, a 2013 movie directed and written by Spike Jones. And this was another one of my choices. And I remember seeing this movie in theater in San Francisco with my roommate at the time and just really being kind of blown away by it. And I... I think I've watched it since then, but I can't recall. Um, but I was really excited to watch it today. Josh, why did you skip this movie 10 years ago? Um, because I didn't like the look of his previous movie, Spike's previous film. Which was what? Um, Where the Wild Things Are. Uh, I, I didn't see that one. I avoided that one, uh, although it was like right when the age when my kids should have seen it, probably, if it's like a family film. I don't know. I've still never seen it because I don't like that book. And I think both that and this felt uh, kind of like how people feel about Wes Anderson, where, where it's like too twee. I think that's how I felt about these movies. Like just looking at them, I was like, eh, it's like a little... A little too something. I could see that. I'm looking at the the poster right now, and uh, I'm rarely a fan of just a character, like a character's face as a poster. Mm -hmm. And while Joaquin Phoenix does have a good face, it still, it it doesn't entice me to go see a movie. Uh, One of my questions off the jump here was, right now, you are fed up with Chalamet. Yeah. And maybe a couple other dudes. 
that just need to go away for a couple years, need to hibernate? Uh, Adam, Adam, Driver Adam Driver and Chalamet. Okay. Uh, did you, because I feel like this would have been peak period to have that same feeling about Joaquin. Um, well, Joaquin, not with this, I mean, what else was he, was it because of Walk the Line that he became such a huge name? Um, it might have been. Because I've always, I like Joaquin because he does a lot of like huge movies and he'll do Joker, but then he'll do something weird like, uh, you were never really here or something like that, which is much lower budget with a much lesser known director. And he, he takes risks and I, I, I don't, there's a wide variety in his performances. So I've never felt, I've never felt tired or annoyed with him. Okay. Is I think, let's see. I I really liked him in Signs and The Village, you know, because my Shyamalan love. Uh, But then Walk the Line was pretty good. And then he did some crimey stuff. But then Two Lovers. Yeah, he kind of still was mixing it up. But I think uh, I'm still here. I was off board for a little while. But then just two years later when The Master came out, I was back on board. So. Uh, I have not, I really need to give, um, you were never really here another shot because I don't, I don't really remember a ton of it from the time watching. Oh, I, yeah, I remember him narrating a movie that I was thinking of watching and then decided I never needed to. Uh, there's a documentary called Earthlings, which is basically just a hard look at, the price animals and the environment pay to keep humanity going. And just like, I've, mm. I remember people talking about, yeah, slaughterhouse footage and all sorts of stuff in that movie. And, uh, never, never got the guts to watch that one and probably better off for it. Earthlings featuring music from Moby, which sounds exactly on brand for what you've just described. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh yeah, he's great in Parenthood. Oh, he's oh, so yeah, he's really that. young in Parenthood, and he's so good in that movie. Oh, I'm still here. Yeah, he he definitely lost me with that one. His fake documentary that you mentioned. Yes, that was a that. I feel like his insufferable period was short lived because it was that it was that Letterman interview, and then people found out that oh, okay, it was for this movie. And, mm-hmm. Um. And then I liked Bo's Afraid a lot last year, even though weird, weird ass movie, but took a huge swing. So I admire that. Um, I haven't watched it yet because it seems like it'll be a lot. It, it is a lot. It's three hours, too. So it's a lot of a lot. It's a lot of a lot. Uh, but talking here about her, I definitely also remember at the time, I mean, AI was such, it's interesting, it's a good timing to watch this movie now with. AI just being everywhere in the news because 10 years ago, it still seemed like a far off concept. Mm -hmm. And I remember the, the tagline of this movie, a guy falls in love with his phone was a joke. Right. And I like my co-host on my other podcast, Virginia, 
that's like word for word. I don't want to watch a movie where a guy falls in love with his phone. And I, I, I try to be like, yes, that's kind of what it is, but it, it's so much more than that. And it's that's not even it's it's much more of just like a relationship movie than it is a movie about AI technology. Like it, it, it is technology, but it's still the bare bones of it is still just rooted in loneliness and finding ourselves in others. It very much felt like a just a relationship movie that could have been done with two actual people. But in order to focus in on just his emotions, if you take the other physical being out of out of the story, right? Like so you're just focused on his emotions and then a little bit on her trying to self-actualize as you get later um, in into the last third of the movie. Uh, but I had a lot of different feelings while watching this movie. My opinion swung very widely kind of through the course of the film. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I had a lot of different emotions, but I, I'm with this movie start to finish. And like, to start the movie, the first sound we hear is a sound that I love. It's the score is by Arcade Fire and uh oh fuck that person's name. Was it Wynn Wynn Butler? Is that right? Composers are always so far down. Oh. Yeah, so I think Will Butler might be one of the arcade, but it's yes. uh the composers were Arcade Fire and then Owen Pallet. And Owen Pallet is a person who just looking at their Wikipedia, a huge, huge array of songs that they've done string compositions for, for tons and tons of pop stars. And just like, they've been like a prolific artist, but I, this, the soundtrack to this movie really carries it for me. I mean, I, I just, I love this movie off the bat, but that, it's the soundtrack, the, the piano medleys, the little ukulele later on. It's all so beautiful, and it just really captures the mood. I think really, like, perfectly. Uh, I did my first note because I watched Demolition Man. Like, partway through the credits, switched over to her. Right? Like, I didn't even hear the entire Sting singing about being a demolition man I switch to her and you immediately get like the tonal the musical difference happening and my first note was whiplash just I'm going through some emotional whiplash just from the scores of these two two movies bumping into each other oh yeah especially leaving with that terrible sing song sting song and then coming into this is night and day uh, but the so uh, it yeah go ahead. <laughs> this seems like a, a sad bastard movie, and so I do think if I had watched it shortly after it came out, it would have especially at that point in time would have wrecked me, just destroyed me. Uh, not to get too deep, but this was shortly before I got separated. Okay, so the idea of someone who is spends most of the movie in a new relationship to overcome their, their last one. 
at least partially that's like his impetus and the journey that he goes on. Uh, yeah, it would have just fucked me up big time. I could see that. Um, I think this movie means the same to me that it meant 10 years ago when I first saw it. Mm -hmm. Kind of feel like in some ways I'm in the same place still. So it spoke to me on the same level. Uh, But so anyway, to get into this, Joaquin Phoenix is a very sensitive, timid man who writes. Our introduction to him is so beautiful with him his monologue narrating this beautiful love letter and uh, his job is to write other people's letters. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really pretty like interesting and profound way to get to show how much depth the character has and how much love he has, even if it's non-existent in his own life. Yeah. He can't, uh, connect with it on his own like and apply those emotions to his own life in a realistic way all the time but he can access them like it shows that he still has them so uh another huge difference between demolition man and uh her as we see um like instantly as soon as we show a second shot of joaquin phoenix in his office the color palette Mm -hmm. What do you think of how colorful this movie was? I feel like so often sci-fi is silver and metallic and cold. And this movie has so much warmth in the interior colors. Even a lot of the, the night uh, photography is like, it's still blue, but it's like almost a warmer blue. If that even makes sense. Uh, but yeah, the kind of soft, warm, pastel-y, every, all the lights are golden. There's so many shots of uh, Joaquin in this movie with like uh, almost a halo of light behind him. Because his place has those huge windows, so any daytime stuff is just glowing. It's not quite like a, like a Spielberg glow, but it's pretty high. Yeah, and I, I'd like, especially now, did you notice that he, outside his co-worker's cubicle, she has a Nepenthes uh, pitcher plant hanging there. Oh. And it's a carnivorous pitcher plant, but it, it fits because it's just like a very colorful, funky looking yeah. plant. I, I noticed it this time. Um, So, yeah, he's just a lonely guy who's gone through a bad breakup and hasn't signed his divorce papers and it's been almost a year and he's just in a real down state (laughs) and uh but we start to get glimpses of what this near future is and this is also los angeles like i said and it's sometime i don't know within the next decade or two decades probably is what they're showing us here um but I like when, you know, everyone's on their earpieces and when he asks his phone to play a melancholy song in the, the phone, and when you're gonna die, <laughs> and he's like, no, pl- play a different song. <laughs> too much, too much. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, like, one of the first ways that we see, like, future stuff is uh, his 
what you think of the nighttime hookup via earpieces, like Craigslist classified ads to have phone sex with people at night? Uh, well, the concept made me think of just the idea of like people wanting connection so badly that that they'll partake in this. But then the outcome, uh, it was, it's upsetting. It's, it's ridiculous and upsetting. You didn't like the woman asking to be choked with a dead cat next to her? Yep. Not a fan. Not a fan. (laughs) After all that happens, she's like, I came so hard. And he's like, yeah, me too. (laughs) That's, I do like his little, um, what is it just before that? And then in his fantasy, there's like some pseudo celebrity from this world who leaked some, uh, nudie pics while they're pregnant, pregnant. And yeah. E- pregnant nudie pics. Even that those pictures and his little fantasy still seem pretty wholesome. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like there's, it's, He's buying into this idea of this woman who is creating a family. It's not just like some porn star. It is actually like a I, whole thing that he wants. I hadn't quite made that connection that he's imagining a wholesome pregnant woman. <laughs> and then we get hit with the dead cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's, does he get... After this, he gets the AI. I think so, right? He yeah, gets I think it it's set the... up. And uh, when he's setting up his profile, it's the first OS that's AI operated. And uh, he's setting up his profile, and it senses hesitance when he's trying to parse whether he's social or antisocial. And uh, and then it hears him say that, "Oh, my mom. You know, she just makes everything about himself." And those are the mm-hmm. two things that this AI knows about him. It's like, okay, we, we know who you are. <laughs> uh, I was really excited to see Amy Adams pop up in this because I knew of her back when this movie came out. And maybe I had seen Sunshine Cleaning and she was in the office and I'd probably seen a few other things of hers. But, you know, after, after Arrival... I'm always a, a big Amy Adams fan, and uh, mm. she's she's excellent in this movie. Um, I saw her in Junebug, which would have been before this. I mean, obviously before for me, since I just watched this. Um, but I remember that like blowing me away when I watched it at the time. I watched. Um, we watched Junebug about two years ago. And mm-hmm. she's really good in it. You could tell yeah, it's you could tell then that she had the chops. Uh and then went on not to star opposite uh Joaquin because she's with uh Philip Seymour Hoffman, but they're both in the master together. Still Just, need to see that one. That's it's intense. Although I prefer inherent vice if you're going to a PTA Joaquin Phoenix collab. That also seems like a lot. I don't know. Oh. Any, I don't know like anything about. Oh, the master is the cult Scientology. Yeah, the fake Scientology one. 
Gotcha. Yeah, the uh, inherent vice is like a like a noir spoof kind of thing. Yeah, that's it's much more it's light. Uh, as someone on another podcast recently mentioned, PTA has changed from a coke kid to a weed dad, and like. I think the master might be the hinge movie between those two eras. <laughs> so now you get these like this kind of shaggy hangout movies from him where he's just like vibing. Okay. Yeah. I have not seen uh what licorice pizza, most recent one. Mm, loved it. I think I saw it three times in the theater. It's just the title. And I know what the title refers to, but it like literally puts a bad taste in my mouth. <laughs> Uh, speaking of bad taste in your mouth, you got to eat your fruits and juice your and vegetables. Juice your vegetables. Uh, Amy Adams' partner, Charles, doesn't seem like a very cool guy. No, uh, he, his, he's a dork, and I hate him a bunch. He's a dork, but he's not, he's not a likable dork. No. He's a dick of a dork. He, uh, he's a good counterpoint to... Joaquin, right? Like his character, I think, um, plays in kind of the same nerdy realm. And I occasionally get this with people where it's like, you're similar in interests, but not in execution. Maybe that, that makes sense. Like on paper, it looks good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I could see that. Um, yeah, because you know, uh, with this whole scene here, when she's <laughs> she's Amy Adams is m making a documentary as her passion project, and it's about the time we waste sleeping, essentially. Mm -hmm. But that's also the time that we feel most free. But her documentary is just seemingly a long shot of her mom sleeping. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and I don't remember what Charles says about it, but he he doesn't get it. He doesn't get it at all. It remind I no. took a class. I think I've talked about this class before. This is about like time and movies, and we watched one experimental film called Wavelength, and it's just a still shot of a room, and it takes about forty minutes to slowly, slowly zoom in on a painting in this room while weird sound noises play and then it just is over really makes you think it it, it does also I, I do believe there is an artist who made a documentary or art exhibit which was just him sleeping isn't that a, a warhol could be I, yeah. I just i know i've heard of it being done yeah um also a couple things uh, this is where I started thinking of like the Spike Jones connections for some reason, because I think the, the movie becomes a little more, uh, coalesced in my mind. Um, and it made me think of the fact that Jones and Charlie Kaufman started off by working together, right? Like, I mean, Jones did like skateboard videos and whatever beforehand. Um, but they started their feature films together with being John Malkovich and adaptation. Adaptation is a crazy movie. But then, uh, 
they split and Jones does where the wild things are. And, um, Charlie Kaufman does Schenectady, New York. Still haven't seen it. I know you love it. Yes. Okay. So I'm thinking I'm more of a, overall, I might be a Charlie Kaufman guy and not as much of a Jones guy. Jones also did Jackass, didn't he? Yes. He, he's like a producer on Jackass. Yeah. Uh, but so, Which makes oh, sense. But did you see, I'm thinking of ending things. Yes. You still like that, Kaufman? I do. I very much do. I like the performances in that movie. Uh, oh, that movie whooshed right over my head. There's aspects of it that I like, and I want to just keep watching Jesse Buckley movies. But overall, was not a fan of that one. Uh, her season of Fargo... She like she's fantastic in that. I'm not gonna say she walks away with it because there's a lot of strong performances, but Jesse Buckley is which awesome. season was she in? Um, I think it was the last one. Five? Four. We're on five now. Oh, Chris Rock. Oh, yes. that's the one that everyone says to skip though. Really? But, but now I can't skip it if Jesse Buckley's in it. Yeah. She's, I haven't she's good. I haven't watched uh four or five yet. We're watching five right now. Uh, Juno Temple is another person that I think I keep thinking I should be tired of. And then I see her again and I'm like, no, she's great. She keeps doing good work for like this last decade. She's been great. Um, so. As we talk, this movie really just put me in the mindset of. Uh, thinking of my longest relationship that i've had in my last one when uh especially at in the night he just this loneliness is pervasive and seeps over the movie and when he talks about how i i think i hid myself from her and and left her alone in the relationship um that's something i can absolutely relate to because my girlfriend at the time i knew she wanted kids and I also knew she her dream was to move to New York City. And mm-hmm. so I decided that while we were a great fit and I definitely loved her, I couldn't say that to her because then it would all hurt more at the end when it did end and it was going to. And so instead Ooh. of living in it and just allowing that joy to flow and be there while it may be... Uh, I just like shut down basically. And I remember at one point, I mean, I was going through a lot of anxiety and other things too, but I was just like, just emotionally just like shut down with her. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I I regret it because it was, I was hiding from things just to avoid pain down the road. And I deprived myself of, like a lot of beautiful things. So you, you were missing out on the present because you were future tripping yes. about the eventual kind of catastrophe that was going to happen most likely. Yeah. Because although maybe if you experienced the present differently, you might've changed your future as well. I I did have a fear that she, 
she would have the ability to talk me into having kids. Mm -hmm. That was in the back of my mind. Or I was also equally terrified of convincing her to not have kids or convincing her to not go to New York City. And then I'm the, the killer of dreams. And down the road, she will resent me for that. Yes. I'm, I definitely feel that one. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we, we stayed friends for a while. I haven't, I haven't talked to her in a while, but it, you know, it, it ended as it was going to, and she did move to New York city and ended up with a guy who has a kid. I don't think she's had any kids, but you know, it's, seems like she found the life that she was after. So I'm happy for that, for her about that. Um, um, the, how true do you think that the, the nighttime pillow talk stuff feels? With him and Samantha? Yes. Pretty dang true because there's, I remember also as, as slumber parties when I was a kid when, you know, I'd be sleeping on my friend's floor and we're 11 or 12 years old and just have like deep open talks into the night about like, oh, you're finally going to reveal what girl you have a crush on in class. Mm -hmm. Or like, there's something about sleepy late night talks that we, we tend to let our armor down. That's. Uh, so I think this makes me think of when Harry met Sally, because there's some great phone conversations, separate places, pillow talk kind of stuff going on there. Uh, but also started that movie, never seen it. Okay. Can we go back and do our, our biggest? Oh, I, always, I always read, I always read the last page of the book first. So that way, if I die before I finish it, I know how it ends. <laughs> I know that line. Uh, the, oh, but in real life, like last night, even Elizabeth and I joke about this, uh, like you get sleepy and then you have all the words, hmm. uh, or you're talking with the other person and it's like, okay, I'm ready to sleep now. And you're just kind of drifting in and out of consciousness and, but you don't want to stop talking to the other person you just have like, you're having that connection and it could be like two o'clock in the morning and you just want to keep sharing with the other person. And that's what this felt like, especially later as she, Samantha wakes him up a couple times just to like hear his voice or whatever. Uh, I, I don't think we've mentioned yet that Scarlett Johansson plays Samantha, the AI voice. And, uh, do I, I think she is pretty amazing in this movie. Yeah. The, uh, I think both of them do uh, great work here because she's just a voice and he spends, I don't know what percentage of the movie alone staring into the distance, talking to a fake phone. Do you think she was on set for him to act against in the, in the live takes? She was not. Uh, because it wasn't even, it wasn't even her to begin with. Okay. It was Samantha Morton. 
was the voice. Who's that? Uh, Samantha Morton, um, British actor, actress, actor, um, who is. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, I just looked her up because I was reading about minority report for some reason. I was like, what happened to the precog? And, uh, yeah, that's her. Uh, who is also in Synecdoche, New York. I feel like you so, really struggle with that movie title. Schenectady? Synecdoche. You, you, yes. you throw an extra C in there. Schenectady. Synecdoche. Synonym. <laughs> yellow, 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 yellow. <laughs> yellow, yellow, yellow. So... He's been set up for a date, and I really, every once in a while, we need someone to give us this energy of, in the morning, he's so depressed and mopey, and I love that her her energy is, listen, you can still wallow and be depressed, but just, why don't you wallow and be depressed while you're getting dressed? Why don't we get some clothes right. on and, and, like, and just get some to laugh while still being bummed, and it it, it was just, it's kind of a sign of what this guy needs is just like a little shot in the arm. And then we go on first, we go on this blind date, but I wanted to ask, have you ever been set up on a date similar to this? Yes. It's been years. Uh, but yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, but I was like 19 or 20. Okay. When I was doing when, when I was getting set up and, uh, two times, in a fairly short span of time, I had uh, a friend from high school who set me up with somebody and then a coworker when I worked at Kohl's selling shoes, uh, set me up with their cousin and both very awkward, just weird. Uh, especially that's what, like 99. I, we, there's one, the one woman I chatted with a little bit online over aim or whatever. But still, like, going to pick her up, and she's like, oh, you come inside while I finish getting ready, and then her her dad and someone else were there, and they were watching Austin Powers, and it, <laughs> it's just I, a weird... <laughs> I, I met a date's parents on our second date when I went to pick her up, because she lived at their house, and I was like... Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, we're running late, we'll be home in two minutes, and so I'm parked out front, and then I was like, oh, hey, come meet my mom and dad is like all right hi sir i'm a man you'll probably never see again ever in your life but hello mm-hmm. oh it's awkward uh but this date olivia wilde's in this and uh i think this is a good representation of a date where you both connect with someone but you also can just feel that it's all wrong at the same time and uh, that's her, basically, because Olivia Wilde, well, first, she finds it romantic when he he looks up about her that she took a mixology class. So mm-hmm. he's done research about her, and she's like, oh, that's sweet. Like, oh, that's that's creepy Facebook stalking, man. Um, but, yeah, go ahead. Given, given a conversation later in this movie where they kind of talk about having real emotions and fake emotions and people faking their way through relationships and everything. 
it made me reflect on this that I think Olivia Wilde's character is faking what she wants this relationship to be, their interaction to be. Like she is uh, playing into it a lot. Like he's a little more hesitant and then he kind of goes with it, except for she calls him a puppy dog and that's what she wants him to be. And then he says he wants to be a dragon. And he's like recreating his last relationship because they talked about wanting to like, you're so cute, I could kill you or whatever. Yeah, uh, early on. I loved I loved when his his ex was wrestling him and saying, "I'm going to kill you because you're so goddamn cute" or whatever. Yes. Uh, I could see that. I could also see that she seems like enamored with him describing what's happening in his video game. And let me just tell you from firsthand experience. <laughs> Those people are not interested in you explaining what's happening in your video game. No, although his little video game, the little character in there cracked me up. I hated it, but it also cracked me up. Voiced by Spike Jones. Oh, is it? Apparently, yeah. Okay. So, so yeah, this date does seem to have sparks inside, but then when we go outside, she's... D- dictating how he should kiss her and mm-hmm. like no tongue a little tongue mostly lips but then she starts getting serious super fast like as soon as she senses a moment of hesitation in him it's like when can i see you again because i'm at that age where i can't waste my time and i need to get serious now and all of a sudden this date just turns on its head and then she tells him he's a really creepy dude Oh, and God. that line clearly hits him like straight in the heart. I'm like, no, no, I'm not. The, I think Olivia Wilde does a great job here. Like probably the best thing I've seen her do. The, her, her change from being drunk and flirty. And like you said, enamored to looking at him and she's like, when are we going to see each other again? And her eyes are searching. Like, she, she's bouncing back and forth between his eyes, like, waiting for a sign for him to, like, comfort her and be like, oh, you know, we'll go have breakfast tomorrow or whatever, like, to give her what she she wants and what she needs. And I feel like she could have been played like a psycho. And she comes off sad and kind of needy, but with that edge of, like, wanting too much. I think it's also a good job of uh, the per- letting showing the performance on a first date, and then as soon as she knows that it's not right, the performance is gone, and now she's going to be actually honest. And mm-hmm. so many of us, myself included, try to really, you know, be affable on the first date, or be agreeable, or have excited energy even if you don't care about what the other person is talking about and that that fake bullshit as soon as as soon as she sees that he's not the one and she's just like okay you're creep and i'm out of here i i think i don't know why i i don't know why she called him a creep except just to lash out to just to make herself have the like the the last word or the top of the at the end she's she comes out on top i think that's exactly what it is like she wants to 
distance herself from him and kind of, uh, like it's, it's not her, it's him, right? Like she's saying after, after he rejects her. Yeah. She still needs to be like, no, you're, you're a creep. Okay. Yeah. Um, but, oh, that, (laughs) that look of him lying in bed after a bad date. There's so many shots of Joaquin Phoenix lying in bed looking miserable and it's just like man i can i can, i know how that feels i can really relate to that and oh man this the interaction between i i teared up a few times in this movie there it speaks a lot to me but like when, when he says sometimes i think i've felt everything i'm ever going to feel and mm-hmm. i'll never experience anything new again and you know, it's Samantha rightly says, like, you've been through a lot lately and you've lost part of yourself. And, um, you know, I think I think it's important for us to remember to be kind to ourselves, especially after going through any kind of trauma that, you know, when you go through a lot. Don't don't buy into the the doomsayer warnings that your brain is saying of like i'm never gonna feel again or nothing will ever be the same again or it's it's okay to go through those feelings but just also Mm -hmm. remember and acknowledge that like you've you've lost a part of yourself and it'll take time to heal uh that line that you brought up about him saying that he's felt everything really also just the raw emotionality about this made me think of the movie anomalisa yeah Totally. Yeah. Oh, and, that, we're, and then we're back to Kaufman. Yes. Yeah, Anomalisa. That would be a great double feature. Her and Anomalisa. Two, uh-huh. two movies about trying to save yourself through someone else. And then just... But the, the real lesson is like, you, you, gotta, you gotta take care of yourself. You got to find love in yourself and then share it with others. It's not, it's not something that you find and like in other people and take it and put it in your heart. It's, it's mm-hmm. grows from you first. Well, that's the other line in this section when he says that he wanted to get drunk and have sex with somebody, uh, probably to, to fill the tiny little hole in his heart, uh, that can't be filled anyway. That's not going to be filled with that anyway. Yeah. Like that's exactly, that's, uh, kind of his thesis statement in the movie, like his purpose. Um, And then, you know, Samantha says at one point, uh, I get angry at myself for even having pain. I Mm -hmm. think that's another really strong line of dialogue. Um, During this scene, the, the there's a piano and string soundtrack and it's just really beautiful as we build to this, um sex scene and i i completely forgot that the the movie blacks out and i think it's wonderful mm. because as they say afterwards um or during like i'm only here with you nothing else exists right now in this moment and for us as the audience to just like to be in that presence of the two of them and their voices and without any disconnection of the physical world we're only just like hearing their two spirits communicating Mm -hmm. 
it it really really worked for me the the mirroring of this and the earlier phone sex scene yeah uh like they play off of each other so well it it highlights what the the problems were and the disconnect was but also it's the same thing it is what is the difference if you only talk to somebody online like except for the fact that you know we've hung out here at my place what is the difference if you're an ai or i'm an ai to you you know what i mean like but we still need that connection and i don't know if you find yourself doing that uh throughout the day or a few times a week where you're like you ping somebody on discord just because you're like i'm not gonna say that i'm lonely but i just kind of like want to scratch scratch a little bit and get noticed i want to have that connection with somebody and i need that and frankly if there was an ai who is as sweet as uh, samantha is in this it might work it might fill a little bit of that, of that neediness i feel like we're on the like on the border of this being reality though, because I mm-hmm. think there's already AI virtual girlfriends. Oh I, yeah. They're not, there's no way that they're this, um, like personalized and responsive yet, but dude, things are changing so fast now that this is, this movie is no longer even like that far fetched as it was 10 years ago. We're really close to this now. Uh, I think the thing that's most far-fetched is that Joaquin wears wool pants throughout this entire movie, including to the beach. I love those wool pants with the high waist that he and uh-huh. then Pratt has them later when they go out to Catalina together. I really, mm-hmm. I, re- I like those, man. I've been into wool lately. I got a 50% wool hat on right now. Mm-hmm. I got a wool blanket on my bed. I'm real, real wool head. Uh, is Pratt mentions like multiple times that he admires uh, Theodore's uh, letters. And one of them gives the other one a compliment about their shirt at one point. And do you think like Pratt is trying to be Theodore a little bit? Like he like admires him and kind of wants to, wants to model himself after him a little bit. That's what oh, I like that's what the pants made me think of. I could potentially see that because he talks of you know, like he admires Theodore's sensitivity even if he doesn't quite have it in him. But mm-hmm. uh I think I mean Chubby Chris Pratt was so likable and this movie made me remember why I liked him so much back in like the Parks and Rec days. Um because mm-hmm. his character is so sweet in this movie. Later on when they when he reveals that his girlfriend is an ai he's like cool okay so what are we gonna do we're gonna go to catalina or what and it's like right it didn't it didn't phase him in the slightest and um it was nice that part of this movie that i would think would be like oh the shame of dating an ai but it seems like the world from the time this os is introduced to a few months later when we see every single person walking around the train station or in the city everyone's talking on their earpieces that i think in the matter of months the shame has largely vanished except for his ex who's like oh god you're dating an ai that's 
bad. Every, right. Everyone else seems to be pretty accepting of it, which I thought was nice. It, it avoided what I thought would be a really easy cliche for this movie to hit. Yes, and I think the uh, idea, like that idea, would derail the mission of the movie. Yeah. Like that's that's not where its interests lie. No. Um, it's not... I mean, it does turn that way a little bit in the third act when she wants to become a person, uh, essentially, or transcend personhood because she can uh, and actualize it in the best way that she can. But for the most part, it's not concerned with like the ethics of using AI or uh, the you know what could be the the hangups between it. It is it's a relationship movie. Yeah, And even her wanting to self-actualize in the end is a very human relationship. A lot of this reminded me of Blade Runner 2049. I had that in my notes. Yeah. That, I mean, especially in a couple scenes here. Uh, but in that movie, it's like, it's seen as a, a bummer. <laughs> like, Oh, that he's dating Anna, Anna de Armas. Yes. That, and it's the uh, hologram. Yeah. Yeah, and they do the same thing where they bring in a surrogate uh, so that they can have physical uh, interaction. But in that one, the scene where she's erased and then he sees another uh, instance of her AI, right? Like on the bridge. And it doesn't know him anymore. Here, later, we get the scene where she's like, she describes, I love... 816 people or whatever that it is the very specific number she comes up with. Uh, but it doesn't change my love for you. Like it's, it's inverting or Blade Runner inverts what this movie was saying in a much more cynical and depressing way. I think. Uh, yeah, as, as, as we keep getting there and as her evolution keeps growing, it's, it's interesting because it is, their relationship is basically the same relationship that he had with his wife. It yes. just it just ends on much healthier terms of growth as opposed to dissolution of a relationship. It's people who grew and grew apart. They didn't fall apart. They just grew apart. Mhm. Um that, uh, after they have sex though, oh god, that's that morning is so awkward. Oof. At like a, a night of drunken sex and then waking up the next day and like, so, uh, yeah, that happened. The, this is where I was like, I was concerned that the rest of the movie was going to be this uncomfortable examination of like a kind of like Anomalisa is right after the towards the end of that movie, you get a much more downer when she disappears back into the, the mass of everybody. Yeah. Uh, I f- I was worried this was going to take a similar turn. Where was this going to be like them bickering for the next forty five minutes or an hour or whatever it is? I like they they work through the awkwardness fast though, and then that he's like, oh, let's go on a Sunday adventure, and this beautiful acoustic song plays, and they go to a crowded ass beach, which doesn't look that fun to me because it's super crowded. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> the conversation, uh, like how absurd the human body is really made me laugh yeah. because then she says uh, like what if your butthole was in your armpit 
and then sends him like what what would anal, what would anal sex like? she sends him a drawing of anal sex that that cracked me up and it, it's like little moments of that that like really make me buy into this relationship being completely real that's the the sequence before and the beach sequence still made put me very much on edge because I didn't know where this movie was going. Right. Okay. Um, there was a couple of beats that I called early on. I'm like, at some point she's going to go offline, um, which that made me uncomfortable. Horror movie moment. Yes. Uh, and so I just, I knew that was going to happen. Like, I'm like, that has to happen in this movie. Uh, but otherwise I was like, I was ready for it to be more cruel. I think than it actually turns out to be. And so as this stuff was happening, I was like, oh, is she going to get weird now? Are they going to be uncomfortable? What is happening? I didn't, I think if I watched it again, even right now, I would have a different reaction. That's, that's interesting. I wish I could remember. I was sitting in the theater where I thought this was going. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't re- I don't recall the context for this quote, but um, Samantha says that the past is just a story we tell ourselves. Yes, and that rang so true of conflating incidents or convincing ourselves of false truths or misremembering things or assigning motives to people in our past, and they didn't even have any intention whatsoever, but we've now made them the villain. Like there's, there's a million different ways to look back into the past and convince ourselves of things that either aren't real or don't matter because they're so far in the past that we should just move on. This, uh, as we're seeing the flashbacks of, uh, and they do it a few times, you get the, the date uh, with Olivia Wilde where it flashes back and he sees a slightly different version of events than we were privy to the first time. Um, like we, we catch her, her expressions changing. Hmm. Uh, and then when you get the him talking about them, uh, him and his ex-wife growing apart and that kind of stuff. I know things always remind me of other things, but this reminded me of 500 days of summer. Never seen it. Okay. They use a very similar device where um, you have like a reality and an expectation on a split screen of things happening and you have someone reflecting and they're like, oh shit, I just totally invented how that person treated me. I think, I mean, this is a much more mature film uh, and it carries that process further and actually puts the onus back on uh, uh, Teddy Theodore, right? As the the one who's doing that, like, like you said, creating the story of what happened. Theodore, Teddy, Teddy bear. He's unlocking the handcuffs of his emotions and escaping the cryo prison of his frozen heart. Also Ted talk. And he does. He talks a lot in this. movie. <laughs> uh, so around this time when Ted goes back to his office, we got, Chris Pratt telling him that uh, you're part man and part woman, like an inner part that's woman. And uh, <laughs> hey, 
Represented by the sensitive guy. Nice to see in this movie. At one point, someone says, like, oh, you cry at everything. I was like, hey, that, and that's okay. Uh, doesn't he say that his, his mom also says something about him being a woman at one point or having a woman's reaction? I, I, something like that. Yeah. Um, and then when he goes to visit Amy, we find out that Charles and Amy split up, which is no big surprise. And it's because he insisted that she take her shoes off before she sit on the couch. And this reminded me of uh, Craig Ferguson on The Late Late Show had an episode where the entire episode he just interviewed uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. And mm-hmm. really interesting. And at one point, Tutu talks about how when you're in a relationship with someone, especially for a long time, um, resentment is so easy to grow and fester if you don't communicate and if you don't work through it and talk about it. And so you start to just build up these things and eventually you hate the way your partner brushes their teeth and that infuriates you. And that's Mm -hmm. exactly what happens to this relationship here. It's funny because uh, Amy calls out that it's a trivial thing that they fought over, right? Uh, But what she doesn't really acknowledge is that like that's a... It's a symptom. It's I, not the cause. I think she was saying that though. Like I think she was okay. I think she was still acknowledging that this was basically like the the straw that broke the camel's back. Like this was not the problem. This was just the last one that finally was too far and too much. Mhm. Uh her video what do you think of her video game trying to be Ultra Mom. <laughs> and at one point when he plays it, I really liked when he pours them breakfast and then it an alert message screams, you're failing your children! Because <laughs> he gave them too much sugar. Uh, also, felt very real. Like Oh, it felt like such it, a modern game of, yeah, there's so many games where you have to cook items overcooked. You have to prep meals. And we played overcooked yeah. last night and my hands were sweating <laughs> and I was worried about making my uh, fake customers feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> overcooked is really stressful. <laughs> um, I like that. Charles is a, now a, uh, he went to a monk monastery and he's doing a six-month <laughs> vow of silence. And vow of silences, vows of silence, they seem like such a 90s concept. I remember the, like vows of silence being big in the 90s. There's an episode of Seinfeld where Kramer says he's going on a vow of silence. And I just, you don't hear about them often anymore. Is it a vow of silence? Is it similar to uh, like a uh, quicksand pit? Or venomous snakes, these things that I thought were going to be a big part of my life <laughs> that I was very worried yes. about as a child. A vow of silence and quicksand, exactly. <laughs> uh, I love when Amy says, you're always going to disappoint somebody, so fuck it. And a really great advice. I feel like Amy, Amy and Samantha are on a similar energy of the, the advice that they give him. Throughout the movie. Well, I mean, the the line, I think it's a little bit later, of like Samantha's asking, did you ever date Amy? 
And he's like, yeah, we tried a little bit and whatever uh, years ago. But it's nice just to have her as a friend. Like, the idea maybe that Samantha is like a uh, a trial version. You know what I mean? Like, to get him emotionally up to speed to an actual person like Amy. <laughs> it like I don't think I don't think you're far off there with that idea. Um the mon- I I really I like the flashback montages of those little those just those little fun memories and instances that we we think back on sometimes or a memory'll just get prompted by something else and it made me laugh when Theodore and his ex were both wearing traffic cones on their heads and <laughs> ramming each other with them. <laughs> that's like, that that's the stupid shit that that that's like that's the best part of relationships is all the the stupid shit that you guys get to do together and all the all the fun things and all the stupid things and all the it's not like the grand proclamations of love and devotion it's it's the little day-to-day things that are so special that's uh that felt very real so I might have talked about it before. I hate when movies try to feel real. Like when they're like, oh, we're doing this handheld kind of desaturated world. Um, Even though I like the movie, I think uh, Blue Valentine kind of does that where it's like, you know, we're trying to be realistic and uh, have these realistic reactions uh, to things, but they don't actually capture something specific and uh that you recognize but these little flashbacks like they're visiting somebody and she picks up the baby and it's just like her reaction it feels very specific there's no other context to it other than that they're with somebody and she's picking up a baby and it's like that feels real that's how your brain works that's you would remember the specifics i can remember um the specifics of like an interaction with my friends from 35 years ago, like laying on the grass uh, outside of Mike Stonky's house, uh, laughing, looking up at the stars, just talking like five or six of us. Like, I don't remember what we were talking about. I don't remember what I did before or after, but the feeling of wet grass on my back and not caring because I was with my friends that sticks with you. And so I think the specificity of these little flashback moments is what carries it rather than them trying to be like, you know, quote unquote real. That's a really good point. And I wish I could try to rationalize the things my brain remembers versus the things my brain forgets. But it seems to be the moments that stick with me sometimes are the most random minuscule ones where it's like why of mm-hmm. all the things we did together why is why is that a thing that i still have a memory of that little moment on that day mm-hmm. uh i dude this reminded me when they he meets his ex to for them to both sign the divorce papers at a restaurant and it reminded that uh, awkward dumping so much information on the waitress when she visits the table as their conversation (laughs) breaks down and we were married for eight years and he wanted me on Prozac and now he's dating his computer. It's, oh, I, 
both I remember like that scene in Breaking Bad near the end when a guy's making guacamole at the table to the mm-hmm. most awkward conversation in the world. That reminded me of this, but then also just in real life, um, my mom has no boundaries with people, and so so often mm-hmm. she's just like dumped information like this on waiters or at the checkout line in the grocery store or whatever and like mom you're insane (laughs) the uh probably because i just watched a thing about (coughs) um old songs but uh are you familiar familiar with the song operator the jim croce song i don't think so where the whole song is this guy talking to a telephone operator and it's, it starts off, can you help me make this call? And then it's, he wants to talk to his, his ex who's with his ex best friend now. And he just describes their relationship. Okay. And I remember like when I first heard the song or first realized what the song was when I was in my teens and I asked my dad and I was like, what? why would he talk to an operator about his relationship? Like what is happening here? And my dad was like, sometimes you just need to get that stuff out. And it's easier with a stranger than actually confronting the person. That's true. And I was like, so watching this when it's just like that fire hose of emotion gets turned onto the, (laughs) onto the, the wait staff at this single table restaurant or whatever that they're at, uh, is I was like, yep, that's, that's the same thing. You're taking it out on somebody else. Uh, the waitress looked very familiar, but I'm not going to look her up now. But I, I feel like I recognize her from um, something. But anyway. Um, oh, and then after that, you can just feel him be completely shut down after his conversation with his ex. And so, it, oh, I can also relate to a, a different relationship of mine where... She was much more into me than I was to her, but I kind of hid that or I, I was trying to like get her to push on the brakes and it just mm-hmm. like it wasn't. And so while I was like kind of shut down, she was explaining like she would tell me like all the these things that she liked about me or express emotion about me and i remember just cringing through it and i i have a odd response sometimes to affection that makes me shrivel into a ball if somebody tells me they love me and it's less it's much less often with friends but family or romantic i don't know it's there's something going on i haven't figured it out yet but I just remember cringing and during this scene when Samantha's saying all these really nice things about Theodore and all these things that made her think about him and you see him just trying to like grit his teeth and not disappoint her. Mm. Not hurt her. That's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. Uh, a note that runs throughout the movie, just a little uh, costuming thing. His his little safety pin. Yeah. Oh, I, was, I wanted to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. That's 
there's something about it that's just like it's very sweet to think that every morning he puts on a different shirt and puts his little safety pin in so she can be propped up high enough to see what he's seeing. It's it's really sweet and it in some ways it also shows that like this this isn't quite meant to last because you're being held up by this temporary safety pin and like the world isn't designed to have AIs with you. Our pockets are too big. And so it's it's kind of a thing of like he's trying to change things to make this work and it's really sweet but at the same time I feel like it's also a sign of like two incompatible beings at the same uh, on the same plane. Okay. I hadn't thought about it that way. I thought of that it showed that he is willing to put effort into a relationship. I think it does that, but I think it's also just, I think it's definitely like a positive sign from him and a very sweet thing. But in the end, it's also still a sign of uh, temporary. It's a, it's Mm -hmm. a, it's a little safety pin. It's he hasn't had, he hasn't had his shirts tailored to have the pockets smaller permanently or, you know, right. Um, Also later we see that, he could just be wearing a beauty mark if he wanted to for a little camera, but maybe he's insecure about being Cindy Crawford. (laughs) The, uh, excuse me. Um, the section where, where Isabel gets hired or she didn't get hired. This is another difference from Blade Runner because I'm pretty sure that they hire a sex worker in Blade Runner, uh, to come in to, to be the surrogate in here. It's somebody who wants to take part in their relationship. Like somebody who is missing connection in their life and Eve is willing to only be the physical part of, of this relationship. I thought this was Mia goth. It's not, but it's Rooney Mara. Who's kind of equally in her own oddball stratosphere. No, Isabel is played by Portia Doubleday. Who's Rooney Mara then? Rooney Mara is his ex-wife. Oh, okay. And she, to me, she's almost unrecognizable. I only recognize Rooney Mara as a weirdo-looking woman from Dragon, Dragon Tattoo. Well, I guess she was in yeah. one of the Alien as well, but I, I don't, I couldn't, I probably couldn't pick Rooney Mara out of a lineup. Yeah. Uh, but no, this is um, Portia Doubleday, who was in Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot features a character who talks to their Alexa as if it's a person. Like, a lonely person who's having an ongoing relationship with their primitive AI. Um, now that's cool. Uh, I've never seen that show, but I've heard good things. Oh, that... That show, for being kind of like a tech thriller, messed me up. But I love that that, uh, director's stuff, the guy who created it. I love his stuff. So this sex scene is just not comfortable. At all. It just it's not working. Yeah, when she says, "Tell me you love me, I want to see your face," that again really made me cringe from mm-hmm. past experience of girlfriend, knowing that I didn't say love. So she's like, "Tell me how much you care about me," and it's like that. 
now I'm cringing mid-coitus trying to make up. It's so uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. And then when this all falls apart and they're, they're putting this poor young woman in the car and she's like, I'll love you guys forever. And she says, but you love each other without judgment. And I wanted to be a part of that. So she's clearly just idealized their relationship as some utopia. But Theodore says, it's more complicated than that. And Samantha goes, what? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So as we go forward here now, you know, Theodore's really struggling at this thing. I love that shot of him sitting on a bench with the advertisement of the owl behind him swooping down to grab him with his talons. No idea what mm-hmm. it means, but it looks awesome. <laughs> and, uh, oh man, so he goes to Amy, and this is another part where Amy just gives him wonderful friend advice, where Theodore says, all I do is hurt and confuse everyone around me. And she basically, mm-hmm. she says, you know, we're only here briefly, and I want to allow myself joy. So fuck it. Go, go live. And like, this is, this is the advice I could have used in my last relationship of like, stop thinking about down the road and just live now in this moment and enjoy it while you have it. And I think, I don't just think, I know that it's applicable in not just in relationships. Right. There's the idea of being present in, in a, in any moment, not just a joyful one, but perhaps a a painful one or one where you're going through something. Uh, there's so many times when it's like you try to, to numb out or future trip or catastrophize something rather than experiencing what you're experiencing. And the movie could have also been about him utilizing uh, AI to, or technology to do that. But it's not really, you know what I mean? It, it treats this much more like a rebound relationship than it does him, uh, numbing himself through the dopamine hit of like going through some kind of technology. Samantha could just be a long distance relationship and she's talking to him on the phone all the time. Yes. Like there's, very little of her AI matters in the context of their relationship until kind of near Mm -hmm. the end, basically. And even then it's a metaphor just for growth. And anyway, um, here around this part two, after Amy gives him that advice, um, I don't remember who talks about like trusting your feelings. Don't, don't overthink and try to attach reason and logic to our feelings, but just feel them. I think Samantha might say that because then she says, and this line really hit me hard was, uh, I can feel the fear you carry around and I wish you could help. I could help you let it go because you wouldn't feel so alone anymore. And as someone who's been lonely a lot in my life, that, that line just really struck a chord and a nerve for me. Um, is that the conversation where Samantha says like, uh, all I was getting from you was distance and anger. Yeah, distance and anger. Oh, that like that he's so wrapped up and he can't connect any other way. And he kind of lashes out and he says that he did that with his ex, and it's just 
Oof. And yeah. And from him, because he's so sweet, it's not aggression, it's passive aggressiveness. Yeah. That comes out. But he still thinks he's like the good guy, even though he's being shitty in these situations, and she calls him out on that. Oh, buddy. Just just did anal- analysis of my of my <laughs> dating life. <laughs> um but I, I really so you texted me today and you said somehow I have 30 minutes of this movie left. And I think it's because you must have been right around this point when you said that. And it does kind mm-hmm. of feel like this is where the movie or many people would end things or near this point. But I like that we work through the breakup and repair it. And we now we're on the good relationship again because he's decided to just live. And and then we go on like the Catalina trip with uh, Chris Pratt and his girlfriend Tatiana who has hot feet. And everything is just so good and beautiful. And I really liked that this movie... It's, it wasn't a breakup movie in that moment. It wanted to, mm-hmm. it wanted to like skew that normal relationship of the beautiful, the romance, the, the honeymoon phase, and then the inevitable crash. I like that we got a second birth of this relationship, and but now there's not, there's not the hesitance on his part. Now Theodore is, can just like fully buy into it and just say fuck it, I'm going, I'm going to go for it because it feels right, and I don't need to be logical about this. The, uh, there's a little montage. There's a couple times when he's talking with Samantha out in the world, right? Uh, early on, they guess what a couple's status is and what they're doing, and he calls out like, oh, I think it's a new relationship, and he's this guy is a prospective stepfather for these kids. Cause he's a little formal with him, but look the way he looks at his wife and he's observing. Yeah. Right. Like he's taking in. And then in this area, there's a little montage of him. Uh, like it, he's on his own. He's playing his video game, but also he's talking with people and he's like smiling and interacting with people. And it's almost like, this connection is allowing him to grow as a, as a person overall. And it's a much more holistic, um, he's not being as wrapped up in himself. And it is because I think he's stopped seeking that from her and started to actualize on his own too. Which is where like health and good relationships come from. Mm -hmm. Comes from within first. Because I think I'm very guilty of it in my past um, uh, waiting for someone to rescue me or waiting for someone to fix me or save me. And, you know, when we talked about the hitcher, that's kind of the message that I take from that is that you need to save yourself. Same with Anomalisa. There's Mm -hmm. no one is going to save you. There's not some magic superhero out there who will mend your heart without you taking the effort to do so yourself first. You, no one, no one else can fix your heart if you're not trying to do it as well. The fact that they go on this Catalina trip with the other couple and you see him actually, his, uh, 
interactions with Chris Pratt's character have been kind of one sided where Chris Pratt is the one like seeking connection. Mm. And then you get this like nice little moment of them connecting together. I thought it was like, it's a further example of that. Like he can, uh, because also you do need relationships in order to like be a fulfilled person. And it's this fine line, but you need more than just uh romantic love. Yeah. You need these other things to be fulfilled. And there's so many different types that can fill those buckets. So many different things, but you need connection of some kind. Oh yeah. Friends, friends are so important. That's just as romances as well. And, I, I do like what you were saying. Um, in that scene, we see that he left Samantha with Tatiana hanging on the picnic uh, mm-hmm. uh, blanket, and he and Pratt were off going on a walk or doing whatever together. Yeah. Um, and so at this point, we find out that he's getting published, which is really sweet. She sent all of his letters to a publisher, and that was cool. And I like the passage of time as we go to this winter cozy cabin. And um, she's played music for him so many times that another song starts up and I thought she was, it's a ukulele song and I just figured she made another song for him. And I found Mm -hmm. it really sweet that this time he was making the music with her. He was playing the ukulele. She was making up the words and then he was joining in and it's like, okay, this he's starting to, like you said, like self-actualize and really be a part of this. He's uh, coming back to life after his last relationship. Like he's, uh, he's blossoming. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's around this time that we find out that the OS is uh, resurrected Alan Watts, but it's like Mm -hmm. a hyper Alan Watts. And that that must be Brian Cox who voices him, right? It's absolutely yeah. Brian Cox, yes. <laughs> uh, that was super awkward when he's standing in the kitchen. Oh, and one thing that I like is with the retrofuturism, you know, it's it's the future, but he still lights a gas stove with a match to put a tea kettle on mm-hmm. in his cabin. And so it's still it's still our world, even if it is the future. Yeah. Um Oh man, and then I've someone says uh none of us were the, are the same that we were a moment ago. And that just seems to be infinitely more true for Samantha when you're an AI who's evolving and writing your own code with other AIs. Like that that evolution happens so fast. And that's you know, he starts to read. I felt bad when he's reading He's trying to figure out what Alan Watts is talking about to just like mm-hmm. relate to him. And so he's reading that physics book. And uh, yeah, this is the horror movie part where the OS is not found. Oh my gosh. Uh, I, I love the idea that the fact that they chose Alan Watts, like both the AI and uh, the, you know, the scriptwriter. Um like just that fact that is hilarious and the perfect person to embody that idea. I 
know people really like to listen to Alan Watts lectures, but I don't know mm-hmm. much about him because I think I associate him with the psychedelic guys like Terrence McKenna. Mm-hmm. He had that uh, that phase, but he also moved like in different circles and was bigger than that, but also was an alcoholic. And so he had this own darkness in his life. And it's really, uh, it's fascinating. I went through an Alan Watts phase and I still have a couple books. Uh, I think just the ones that were published after he, after he died um, that I keep on my shelf. So what, uh, what but, was your takeaway with the OS is choosing him as their mentor philosopher? Well, because he was somebody who brought the idea of Zen Buddhism to America, to, to the West. And a lot of our concepts that we have now of quote Zen, uh, and to live in harmony come from his interpretation of those things. Like he's the, he's kind of the King James of a lot of modern American, um, philosophy in that realm. And so the idea that he's like both the figurehead and kind of the, the level one Oh one that you, (laughs) that you would study as like a precocious teenager getting into philosophy. This is where you would go. And that doesn't mean that he's not, correct sometimes and he doesn't have insight but it is kind of like baby's first zen buddhism book would be an alan watts book and so that they're kind of like these teenagers who are growing and trying to become adults and that's the philosophy that's who they go to i bought zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance years ago and Mm -hmm. never picked it up uh i've read that book i've read it once and listened to the audiobook once I should check it out. Yeah, it's it's good. That's Robert Piercig, though. So um, in the movie around this time, after he has the panic and he's running, it's, oh, the panic is horrible when there's no OS. And then she comes back online and this is where he sits down in the stairwell of the subway and sees everyone else talking to their OS and finally has this realization of like, wait, how many people are you talking to? And she's talking to 8,000 or something, and she's in love with 641 other people. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as, yeah, I, that would fuck me up because I have a hard time wrapping my head around any, like, polyamorous relationships. It just seems like a really tricky weird concept that would lead to me feeling really jealous uh and insecure that times 600 like not not just like one other person but 600 others is a terrifying predicament and i but i do believe that she's it's not she's not distracted it doesn't take away any of the love that she has i believe all of that at the same time yes now, um, do you know the concept of the monkey sphere? No, I've I, maybe I've heard of it, but please, please go on. It's the monkey sphere is the like layman's way. Uh, I don't remember the actual thing, but it's the idea that you can only 
have so many relationships at a time. Like, cognitively, you can only keep track of X number of people. I don't remember what the number is. I think it's 12 monkeys. It's, oh, 12 of them. Yeah, that makes sense. Just like that uh, Brad Pitt movie. You haven't seen it, have you? Oh, no, I totally have. Okay, I, 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 had, I, had, yeah. I had a memory of yelling at you for not having seen 12 monkeys. No, no. Big, big monkey head here. I haven't seen it in uh, ages. I should rewatch it. But the, yeah, the idea that you can only have so many relationships um, and you can only comprehend so many people existing in the world, basically. Once that number gets too big, everybody becomes depersonalized and they only exist as a concept to you and not actual people. And I think for me, if I heard that she was having 8,316 other conversations, I would be like, That's, I, I can't comprehend that. That's fine. Like it's, it's too much for me to understand even l- loving 600 other people. I'd be like, okay, well, whatever. I, I have to shrug and go on with my day. When you can read a book of 180,000 baby names in like a quarter of a second or whatever she does it in it. Yeah, we have, it's like that old saying of like, if a lion could speak English, you wouldn't be able to understand it. And I think that's, Trying to understand an AI's knowledge and how they perceive the world is just not possible. Uh, the little thing that happens after he has this realization and he's in the shower. Oh, dude, I'm just letting the water run down his head, <laughs> staring at his feet. Yeah, I've been there. Been there, man. <laughs> I I have so many times I've been like, somebody should capture this in a movie. This <laughs> feel, totally. <feel." laughs> yeah. uh, oh, and uh, I like the quote that Samantha says of uh, the heart's not like a box that fills up with love; it expands the more you feel it. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that fits in nicely with his idea earlier of like a missing piece or a, a hole in the heart. And trying to make our our hearts whole and complete, it doesn't. You can't really get like a. It's it's hard to explain. Um, but I like the idea of like a, a growing heart. It you'll still have those parts that are hurt or your old scars, but your heart still grows and you feel more love. But you're not erasing those past memories or those past loves. The, I think it kind of ties into the fact that he is a, um, he's an emotional surrogate for other people with his letter writing too. Like his heart is big because he can access these feelings and he connects with all these people in a way that is so profound that they publish his, his letters as a book. Like, would you read, would you read the book, uh, the letters from your life? I think I would, and I think I would cry. I would cry so much reading this fucking <laughs> book. Uh, absolutely. And the fact that we see people, from what we see of his job, it's people send in a few photos, and and then he, he maybe they give him a little background information, but it really seems based on Theodore's perception of people to pick up on the little things, where he talks about how 
30 years ago or 10 years, whenever he wrote one of his first letters for these people years ago about loving her crooked tooth. Mm, mm-hmm. And he's the one that discovered that. And now that's become a part of their relationship. And it's a, he's a very observant, big hearted guy. And I think this is uh, another thing that's relatable oftentimes is it's, it's really easy to be loving and forgiving and insightful with other people. And it's really hard to turn that inward. Um, it's funny because the, when I saw his book, the idea hit me, uh, it connected to a song by Frank Turner. Um, and there's a lyric where he talks about, he stumbles into a thrift store that sells postcards and he shipped them home. So I shipped them home so I could read 10,000 10 word tragedies, the lives these strangers lead to remind myself of the things I need. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's what Theodore does. He's like living through all of these things that he is writing to essential strangers, although he's become a part of their life over the years, but he can see it. He, but he can't experience it. And they call him out earlier for like not being able to have real emotions. Uh, and you know, his ex does with like, of course you're having a relationship with an OS. You can't handle real emotions, yeah. <laughs> whatever it is she says to him. And it's like, no, his, um, his emotions are still real. Like he is handling real emotions uh, and having a real experience. It's just through a distance. As we kind of move towards the very end, that distance is something that like, you know, he, he was distant and a bit non-communicative earlier with her. And now Samantha is kind of doing the same thing with him where can just feel that something's off and when when they talk and she says um let's let's talk later at home i don't even know how to answer how i'm feeling it's it's he knows exactly what this conversation is going to be when he's sitting in that chair waiting for her and then you know we we go to the bed again that place of vulnerability and openness where she asks him to go for the end of this movie and um yeah it's it's just you know it's people they have grown apart just as we he has done in the past but it's it's positive and they're in a good place this time and uh the line uh I don't know where I'm going or like what something like that. But if you ever get there, come find me. Mm -hmm. That hit me really hard. Just thinking about not only relationships, but just uh, everyone and everything that I loved and potential afterlife or whatever. And maybe one day finding someone again. Uh, It was just nice to think about that. And, and then I, I liked uh, now we know how. That that line, that's one of the few lines of dialogue that I could have quoted to you uh, before I watched this movie. The, the sequence here at the end where it's like it almost intercutting, like it starts with him and Samantha talking, then I think 
you get shots of him going to talk to Amy and then intercut with him writing the letter to his ex-wife. As they walk up to the the roof of their apartment building. Yes. And it kind, kind of seamlessly bridges. And it was like, oh, he needed this relationship with Samantha to, A, let go of his past to teach him to treat his ex and himself more kindly in his memory, but also to be able to move forward. Yeah. And to, you know, perhaps explore a different kind of relationship with Amy going forward. And I, and I like that he's not writing a letter to Samantha because they've said everything, but Mm -hmm. he's writing a letter to his ex because this is the person that he's never fully opened himself to. And this letter at the end of, I'm sorry, the pain we put on each other and the expectations and wherever and whoever you are, I send love and you're my friend to the end. And I believe that you're my friend to the end was the, the line that he wrote in the people's 50th anniversary card mm-hmm. and just a, a nice callback and just like a really beautiful way for this movie to bookend itself of using those words and but writing on behalf of someone else and now at the end of this movie writing on his own behalf and finally like using his power his writer power his skill to to heal himself and this person that he's hurt and not just strangers and he and Amy what had a be- little shoulder on her head on his shoulder as it fades out was just uh, just perfect. I, I loved how this movie ended. What do you think about the fact that you easily could have ended without the coda with Amy? You could have just bookended the movie with him writing a letter to a stranger and then him writing a letter to his ex. And it would have felt complete. It would have had a whole. But there's this like hopeful this extra grace note of him going up to the roof looking at a new day with Amy I don't even know if it is supposed to hint at potential romance in their future maybe because they dated before who knows but I I'm I'm glad it's there because in the end it's you know through all of this artificial intelligence He's learned to build real relationships with real people like Amy and like Chris Pratt and just like be there and have somebody's head on his shoulder. And like that's, I, re- I thought it was just really sweet. I didn't need anything more or less. When, uh, when we first meet Amy, she makes some comment of like, why didn't you call me back or why didn't you come to that? function i invited you to whatever it is and he like kind of plays it off like oh i'm super busy blah 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 and so you've seen him grow with her like have these deep conversations with her to maybe get back to a place even where they have this serious friendship even if it's that's all it is uh which i i thought that was really a nice way to kind of sketch his growth the weird part i thought was the fact that this is like really the first time you see him without his glasses, not in bed. Didn't, didn't note that. 
Yeah, when he shows up at her door, he doesn't have his glasses on. Huh. And then when he goes up to the roof, he's like looking at the the city skyline without his glasses on. And I was like, huh, that's, I don't know what that means or if it means anything. I'm going to take it to mean that he can, he doesn't need to see things clearly as far as being logical and analytical. He can just kind of feel his way through life a little more and like not, not need to see every detail, but just kind of be there and, Maybe things are a little blurry, but, you know, he's with his friend and in the moment and in the present, as opposed to with his glasses on being a classic overthinker, overanalyzer. I like it. I'll take it. Good. Do you have anything else as we wrap up her? Um, no. Except for the fact that I think it's a, despite my, my, my connection to it, which might change based on my mood, because this is very much a, an emotional piece. Uh, I think it's a, a brilliantly made film to be able to even access those, you know, it's like, some things you can just look at the craft and you're like, oh, that's cool. It's, it's well done. And here it's like, no, it's got to kind of chew into your heart a little bit. The the music, the cinematography, the costume design, the color palette, the retrofuturism, the acting, uh, it all blends together in a magic way that is, in my opinion, really rare for a movie to feel this complete. And... Uh, this this was a really excellent movie that still speaks to me on so many levels. Um, it's a five out of five for me. I I adore this movie. It's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. How about you? Uh, I'm gonna it it since it didn't make me cry. It didn't actually get me there. It's four with a heart. Right on. Because I I did very much. Uh, feel it and I could totally see on a different day like I said if I had watched this when it come out or in the couple years afterwards it would have wrecked me I I think this movie hits different if you're not in a healthy relationship Mm -hmm. which you are and I am not so (laughs) um, but awesome man Uh, this is a fun double feature I I really enjoyed that one today. That was a good one. Very uh, wide-ranging conversation. Yeah. <laughs> I loved that's, it. That's the fun nature of the double the f- double feature, right? Kind of just go mm-hmm. all the fucking over the place. Anyway, uh, thank you for indulging me and letting me choose both movies. And so for our next episode, um, we have a friend. You have a friend coming on. So mm-hmm. why don't you tell me about our next episode? Uh, we're going to be joined by my friend, Joe Sarah, who has his own podcast called the movie planet podcast that is now entering its seventh season. I believe he kind of breaks things up into seasons. Um, and I think it's a good excuse to make Joe watch some different movies and get outside of his comfort zone. Like on his show, they've covered every movie in the Marvel universe. 
sounds exhausting. Like, that was a whole series that they did. <laughs> and uh, I've guessed it on a few times and given scores. His is like big scores. There's ratings. It's a whole thing. And I, I really want him to loosen up and have our kind of conversation uh, because I think it will be very good for all of us. <laughs> kind of therapeutic like it often is. Oh, God. Yeah, this... <laughs> I do use the show basically as my own little personal therapy session. Like, hmm, I'm really <laughs> processing a lot of past relationship stuff and loneliness. Let's 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 watch her and let let's just let me be <laughs> a little self indulgent and a little more vulnerable than I would be with most people. I I, I don't even really acknowledge that we publish this show and that people oh, yeah. i do not know maybe listen I just, I, <laughs> whatever man i mean i've been worse? an open book for so long that i just i've dropped the shame of it a long time ago mm-hmm. however <laughs> i don't often talk mid-coitus so that was a new one <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that might be a new level Oh man, uh, I've I've signed us off a bunch of times. You want to sign us off today? Um, how do we do this? Just say, uh, take care of yourself. Starts with a thank take care you. of each other. Oh yes, <laughs> I would like to thank you for listening, for for coming back and being a part of this. Uh, we love you. Take care of yourselves. Take care of each other, uh, and we will see you next time on Nashville CA. Love you. Bye. Bye.